Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. This is a very special and in some ways sad session of the Paracast. It's going to extend because of the nature of the guests and what they have to talk about to a full three hours. And David and I are very pleased, first of all, to have this roundtable of guests, but sad about the fact that John Keel, one of the guiding lights of the UFO field for a number of years, died last weekend. And we'll get into the details of his life and his final years momentarily. Of course, in addition to David and myself, we have a total of six guests. Our guests, and this will be in alphabetical order, so nobody is offended. Tim Beckley, say hello. Greetings, everyone. We also have joining us the one, the only, an old dear friend of mine, Jerome Clark. Hello, everybody. Lauren Coleman. Hello, this is Lauren. I'm here, and John Keel's not. Okay. We have Jim Mosley joining the fray. Yes, that's correct. And Brad Steiger. I am here and happy to be with everybody today. And, John, we know you're there somewhere. And an old and dear friend of mine. I've known him for quite a number of years. For a while, we were out of touch. And just before doing the show, I had pleasant conversation with him. I'm glad to have discovered an old and dear friend who also knew John Keel very well, Kurt Southerly. Kurt. Good afternoon. How are you all doing? We're doing great under the circumstances. Now, I'm going to turn first to Lauren Coleman. Lauren, you see, has chronicled some of the life and times of John Keel and wrote some of it in his blog. And maybe you can tell us something about, briefly, his life, some of the things he did, and maybe something about his final years, which weren't always so pleasant. Lauren? Sure. John was born in upstate New York in a, a little town called Hornell on March 25, 1930. And he lived at home with his parents for a while. At the age of 10 or so, his parents died and he moved in with relatives in a nearby town, Perry and was raised on a farm, was extremely unhappy there. And indeed, from the reports we have, and who knows, John told so many different stories, it's sometimes hard to tell where the reality is and where the truth is. But around the age of 16, he ran away to Greenwich Village and became an early bohemian in some ways. And even though we uh, have to look back to the age of 12, he wrote his first article that got published in a magician's magazine at 12, so he, he really knew what he wanted to do. He quit school, ran away to Greenwich Village, started writing scripts, writing novels, writing poetry, writing sort of early forms of porn even uh, in men's magazines, specialty magazines, and, and then down through the years became a stringer for uh, newspapers, and, and it was through that connection that he was uh, looking into the cases of uh, UFOs in the Ohio Valley, and then, uh, and then such things as a winged cat. He had an early report of a winged cat in West Virginia, went there and found out about the Mothman cases. So we, we'll talk more about all of that later, but let me then jump ahead to what happened in 2006. The movie, of course, the Mothman movie came out in 2002, and probably for all of a few months, John was wealthy. I'll tell you what, this is the Mothman Prophecies, kind of a fictionalized version of the book, which featured Richard Gere 
playing a guy named Klein, who I guess was kind of a composite character that was sort of including Keel. I don't know. Yeah, that was half of his personality. The other half was Alan Bates played a, a guy named Leek, L-E-E-K, which was Keel backwards. So the movie has all kinds of little end jokes, and Jerry actually has done quite a bit on some of the other names that were in that movie that were, were really inside jokes. But anyway, let me just talk about the end of Akil's life, where in, in 2006, he had a heart attack. He apparently really didn't realize he had a heart attack. Then he did realize it on October 13th. He admitted himself to a hospital, found out that, um, you know, he had a heart attack, and a few days later was getting heart surgery. And really then what occurred for the next three years was John in some ways, did not take good care of himself. Uh, he would be in and out of the hospital. Doug Skinner and uh, Larry Sloman Ratso, who, who did High Times, became his health surrogates and took care of him. But what they, uh, what they would tell me is that John would, you know, go into the EMT or the ER or go into a nursing home and yell at all of the people and tried to get discharged as soon as possible. He'd go down to a coffee shop, have another collapse, and the ETs, you know, the um, EMTs would have to show up and take him to another emergency room. And he went in and out of that for three years, and then towards the end, uh, just really, uh, even though his neighbors and other people wanted to help him, he really became more and more crusty, I guess is the word I like to use, and really hard to tolerate and somewhat introverted, very poor and and really nobody knew what was going on he he would get a cell phone or people would get cell phones for him and then he'd refuse to pay the bills and they'd get turned off so indeed when i wrote the obituary of him on uh, he died on friday the third july third i heard about it and wrote an obituary on the sixth his family contacted me on monday on the sixth and said we didn't know he died uh, where's his body and so i told him where he died and they hadn't found his body until Monday, so it was a very, and they're now coming and trying to deal with all of the papers and all of the affairs that he sort of left in a mess. But that was sort of John, you know, he kind of went out with a um, little whimper, not so much a bang. Well, that certainly encapsulates a life where he produced a lot, and I don't know if we want to characterize what his condition might have been as he got older, but I guess we can kind of get the sense of it. Now, every one of you who have been there knew John Keel to some degree. Now, I remember back in, was it the mid-60s, I was working for Jim Mosley at 303 Fifth Avenue in New York City. I was helping him with Saucer News. That's before it became Saucer Smear, and that's before John Keel put a label on him and that magazine but Jim one day John Keel walked into the office you remember that oh yes well he walked into the office if I remember correctly because he was working on a uh, article for Playboy magazine that's the first time I remember him being in the office I think I had met him a couple of times before that and uh, if I remember correctly it's rather interesting I had a small degree of fame uh, myself in, in those days because of the uh, marsh gas explosion, you might say, in 1966. And I was on uh, two uh, network t television shows, What's My Line and To Tell the Truth. 
uh, as a guest. And at one of those, whichever one it might have been, uh, I met John Keel backstage because he was one of the writers on the show. And, and that might have been the first time that I met him. All right. Now, your association with him wasn't always pleasant, but let's talk about the pleasanter uh, aspects. I'll be glad to talk about that. It was not pleasant at all, yes. Go ahead. Tell us, where did it turn for you, Jim? Now, originally, I thought, you know, you were on pretty good terms with him. Then he coined the term for you and the saucer smear, a boil on the ass of you followed. Now, he had this kind of wacky sense of humor, so we understand it, but when did he get into that kind of mood about you? Well, it's still a mystery to me uh, just when and why Peel started disliking me, but it seemed to me that he disliked me from the very beginning, and I have to tell you two brief stories that rather prove that long before he invented this uh, oil on the ass of ufology. Uh, Keel was one of our speakers at the 1967 uh, UFO convention at the Commodore Hotel in New York, which indeed was the largest indoor convention uh, ever held on the UFO subject. And one of many speakers that we had was John Keel. And uh, the uh, sponsor of this convention was the National UFO Conference, uh, which I later became chairman of. In any case, to make a long story short, a small group of us in this uh, conclave that uh, was the sponsor of, of the convention decided to give the, the Ufologist of the Year award to John Keel because he was already quite well known for the things that he had already written in the field. And so when uh, Keel got up to speak, we didn't warn him about it beforehand, and I think the uh, proper way to do it is not to tell the person beforehand, but in a practical sense, perhaps, one should. Anyway, he got up to speak, and uh, I think I introduced him, and, and uh, perhaps he began speaking for a moment, I can't remember. And then I interrupted him to uh, give the short spiel having to do with the the award, and I must have had a plaque in my hand or something. And it rattled him completely, threw him off. He had uh, trouble getting started. He was nervous. I mean, uh, what I did destroyed uh, the beginning of his speech, and I don't think he ever got over that. Uh, but uh, better still was... Uh, we had a uh, saturation of publicity in New York City for this convention. On that particular weekend, other than sports, there was the biggest thing going on in New York City was this convention. I hate to tell you that, but it's true. And uh, I was invited on many shows, and I couldn't do all of them. One of the shows that somehow got in touch with us uh, was willing to have one of our speakers on, or me, or whoever, was the Today Show. And uh, that's early in the morning, and, uh, well, like Keel, I'm not a morning person, but that wasn't the real reason that I gave the show to him rather than taking it myself. I thought it would be an honor to Keel, and uh, he would be glad to do it. And he never forgave me for that. Uh, and I did not hear the Today Show, but people who did say uh, that he deliberately did not mention the convention at all. Obviously, the reason to get these people on these shows was to have them plug the convention, which he deliberately did not do. 
So when we're talking about 1967, I think it was 1977 that he uh, first wrote in a letter mentioning the uh, phrase boil on the ass of ufology. Uh, but if one asks when did the relationship between me and Keel sour, uh, I can't answer that because it was always sour. And I'll uh, let somebody else uh, comment on that. Well, actually, uh, this is Tim. I, I, I do have a comment on that. Uh, I spent some some time with uh, uh, John. I mean, both socially and <laughs> professionally, if you consider the skill the profession. Um, one of the things that I think he was kind of uh, thought that you had been rude to some extent, uh, Jim, because you questioned his uh, research uh, efforts. I mean, you were always like quest quizzing him as to the um, uh, authenticity of uh, what he was uh, writing about and, and saying. I mean, in those days, of course, the uh, ET uh, the belief system was was fairly big, just as it is today. And of course, he was the, the probably the the first. To go off into another direction with this uh, altogether, and well, I, I don't remember. I, I remember. I don't remember well, you, specifically questioning him. Well, you did about all those phone, the phone calls and stuff, and did they really happen? And remember when he was in West Virginia, he was getting all these weird phone calls in the uh, hotel rooms, and uh, you know what? That's an interesting topic that I would like to go into, and maybe you want to expand on that in a moment. Less so much, of course about how maybe he and Jim didn't get along after that. I think we got the sense of it, but I like to get into those strange phone calls. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of the PowerCast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels, you pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right? You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. This offer only good for USA listeners. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, Send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? We have a special three-hour extravaganza for the Paracast. It's a remembrance of the late John A. Keel, and we're featuring Tim Beckley. Jerome Clark, Lauren Coleman, Jim Mosley, Brad Steiger, and Kurt Southerly, and everybody is going to have ample opportunity to give their remembrances. But let's talk about that, Tim, for a moment. He went to West Virginia to investigate the Mothman prophecies, and he was getting these weird phone calls. What was that all about? He recounted that in the books, by the way. 
Well, it, it wasn't just in West Virginia, also at his his home uh, in New York. He lived just a couple of blocks away from me in the Kitts Bay. Somehow I would end up to, at the, you know all hours of the uh, of the night, and we'd sit around and and talk about all of this uh, material, you know. And I guess this was even before the uh, the book uh, came out or around that time. And he would say that he would ch- check into a um, a motel. Nobody in town, uh, you know, knew knew where he was, and he wasn't a popular figure at that at that point. He was just sort of started, uh, you know, getting into investigating these uh, reports. As, uh, I, I think it was uh, mentioned uh, that he was doing um, uh, some articles for a nationally uh, syndicated newspaper chain, right? And uh, I don't know if it was the, the Hearst Papers or what, but he had quite a few articles published, uh, not just about the you know UFOs, but about other fourteen phenomena as well. Anyway, he would check into these uh, these uh, motels unannounced to do his investigations and I, I guess a lot of field uh, work. I mean, he was going out into the uh, fields just by himself or maybe one other uh, individual uh, associated with this lady, Mary Heyer, who worked for the uh, Athens uh, Gazette, I think was the name of the newspaper uh, down there. You know, the, the phone would ring in the middle of the night and there would be heavy breathing on the one end and then there would be a voice and the voice on the other end of the phone seemed to know what he was involved in and what he was doing, not only in the hotel room but as far as his own investigations uh, would go. This voice, not only was a voice, but I think he also said it was like a series of beeps would follow him around from place to place. And even in, when he was in New York, and he had an unlisted number at that time, the, he would still get these telephone calls. You know, he became wrapped up in this, and I, I guess you know he did become a little bit uh, paranoid, uh, you know, over this because I guess he figured uh, someone was you know watching him or keeping tabs on his uh, activities. And uh, you know, he his whole philosophy kind of. Uh, grew and expanded from those early uh, experiences. But one thing I should add, you have to take what John Keel uh, said not only in person but in his books with a, a degree of uh, of uh, a skepticism and a degree of uh, salt because remember he was a, a humorist that was the, one of the first articles that he sold for two dollars was to a, 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 a humor a magazine he also wrote comedy for for television for Merv Griffin and for others like you said he was friends with the Ratso who was the editor of uh, a National Lampoon who wrote some of the movie scripts and 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 so forth and a lot of the things that he said were to be taken tongue-in-cheek. Remember, he was the uh, ran the New York uh, 14, the society, for quite a number of years here. And I always uh, believe from listening to him and, and, and talking with him that he was trying to emulate the the humor and wit of Charles Ford and Tiffany Thayer. Hmm. And I think uh, that was misunderstood by a lot of people who didn't know that uh, Ford, in addition to being a... Uh, a caretaker of the strange and unknown, also considered himself a, a humorist and a satirist. So uh, this is, I think, where where John kind of got that biting uh, sense of uh, humor. He was trying to be funny, and a lot of people didn't realize it. But maybe that trying to be funny did, in later times, turn into a, a degree of sarcasm that was beyond being funny. Well, hey, but Tim, one point about uh, this, and that is, it doesn't sound funny to me that you get weird phone calls at a hotel. Oh, it's, it's, oh no, no. Well, no. That would that would that would be a that would be a separate thing uh, uh, altogether. But you know that lasted for a period, I guess, for quite a few years. And then there were other things too that kind of just uh, tied uh, in. And uh, but he was he was very um, harsh on people 
who w- believed that he was making it up, and, and Jim seemed to indicate that maybe it was well, you know, it, all in his it mind. Seems yeah. to, uh, it seems to me that he was making some of it up, and I don't remember making an issue of it, but I also think that he blamed me for hoaxing him. I think that may have been part of his problem. And it is possible, and I don't think this is well known, I think it's possible that Gray Barker may have hoaxed him on some of that, but Barker and I did hoaxes together, and uh, Barker did other hoaxes on his own that he never told me about because he knew I had a big mouth and I'd tell everybody. So if Heel was ever hoaxed in those peculiar phone calls, it was nothing that I did and nothing that I made fun of. Okay, let's move on to one of our other guests here. Kurt, you're new to the show, but as I said to our listeners, a long-time dear friend. Kurt, you were in the Air Force, as a matter of fact, when you first encountered the works of John Keel. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, uh, as a matter of fact, I enlisted uh, in 1968, and it was shortly after that that I that I actually started corresponding with John. I'd, up to that point, I'd read his, he, he was publishing and uh, Saga magazine. Uh, there were a couple of other men's magazines at that period, and it, his writing style was incredibly captivating. I mean, it, Tim's correct. He was he was a humorist. You could pick up on some of that in his literary style, but there was just something that would draw you into the story. And it, it wasn't just the material that he was throwing at you. It was it was the way he presented it. And I, I devoured all of his stuff, and somehow I got a hold of his address. It may have been through you or through Jim at one point, uh, maybe even Rick Hilbert, I'm not sure, but I got his address, and I started writing to him, and he started writing back. And I explained that it was in the Air Force, and uh, you know, was hoping to become a writer at some point myself when I got discharged. And he was always very polite, very courteous and and tried to actually tried to be genuinely helpful in these letters so one day i got a letter from him and he said uh, i'm in washington dc and i was stationed at the time at uh, andrews air force base which is right outside of washington dc and he said i'm staying at this hotel he said if you want to come on down one evening he said we can get together he said we go out have dinner you know talk finally get a chance to meet i thought wow this this guy who's my kind of my hero is asking me to go meet him at this hotel, and so I thought, sure. So I wrote back. I said, you know, be happy to. He, he had left a phone number. I called him later. We arranged the whole thing. And uh, one evening when I was off duty, I drove into D.C. and met him at the hotel. And we he met me in the lobby, and we proceeded to walk some of the streets that, that were lined with uh, shops in Washington and, and we were one of the things that, that I remember mostly was we were browsing in bookstores and he would stop and he would go to the magazine racks and he'd pull off the magazines and he was looking for his articles and it was kind of kind of funny you know and I'm, <laughs> I'm watching this guy he's like let's see if I've got anything in here well we ended up going back to the uh, to the hotel and at the time he was he was in DC he was working as I understood it for Department of Health Education and Welfare he didn't tell me in the letters or up to that point exactly what he was doing for that, that department. We get went up, up to his room, sat down. I remember he, he kicked off his shoes, put them up on a coffee table. I sat back. I think we were drinking coffee or something, something kind of innocuous. And I, I finally asked him, I said, so, you know, why are you in town? What, you know, what are you doing for health, education, and welfare? Well, there was a three-ring binder laying on the coffee table. He pointed to it. He said, there it is. He said, have a look. 
Now, I'd been in the Air Force for a couple of years, and I had this military indoctrination kind of ingrained into me. You know, you, you dealt with the Privacy Act, you dealt with classification systems. You didn't look at something that you weren't entitled to look at. And I'm thinking, this guy's working for this agency. You know, do I really want to pick this up and look at it? Do I have the right to pick it up and look at it? I never did. I just left it lay there, and the conversation went elsewhere. And to this day, I still have no idea what he was doing you know, for health, education, and welfare. Maybe somebody else did. Does anybody else know? Anyone? Jerry, do you, do you have any idea what he was doing? No, I remember that he mentioned in correspondence that we had back then that he was doing something like that. But I never really gave it a second thought. In fact, when Kurt mentions it right now, this is the first time I thought about it probably in decades. I, I think it was policies and something that's not at all secret, not at all ufological, uh, but he did all kinds of other kinds of work uh, with, you know, human service people. So You don't think it had anything to do with UFOs? No, No, I don't at all. I think, you know, I think that it was, he just would take jobs when he could get them sometimes. Yeah. What would UFOs have to do with that particular department? I can't imagine. Yeah, I I couldn't either at the time. And uh, but again, I just uh, I had this kind of mindset that you know I was I was a sergeant in the Air Force. You, I was I had a secret classification, but I didn't have anything higher than that. And I'm thinking this guy is working for the government, whether it's on a freelance basis or not. You know, so I I didn't really feel that I was entitled. Now, of course, today being older. Uh, Presumably a little bit smarter and a little less cautious, I probably would have grabbed the folder and started leaving through it. <laughs> I would have grabbed it maybe taken it with me. That's being almost, <laughs> But we don't want to get into that. We don't want to cover what I would do. Briefly, Brad Steiger, before we cover a lot more ground, when did you first encounter the works of John Keel? Mm, the works of John Keel, I suppose, would have been about the same time I met him and met most of you. And that's at that magnificent <laughs> Commodore Hotel 67 gathering. Right. And I met him only briefly then, and then came back, which some of you will remember. I was editing special issue UFO magazines, which a number of you contributed to. And uh, I met him then um, personally. He took me to my very first Chinese dinner at the country boy from Iowa. John was, at that time, always extremely polite and and kind to me. And I felt, you know, inspired by his example, so to speak. Now, he also, at the same time, when we'd go back to his apartment, he would tell me some of the most outrageous things that I still don't know if I fully believe or not about the visitors that he had like Tim says the phone ringing well he would tell me how people would come in just through the door of his apartment and they would reach beneath his sink and take out Hylex or Clorox or whatever you would might want to call it and drink volumes of it to prove that they were not human to prove that they were some other kind of species and he wrote also a number of letters along those lines now as you said a sense of humor uh at that particular time i mean let's be honest you know we we were looking for nuts and bolts uh, the three men in black had us all a little on edge 
Were they here? And a lot of us really wanted them to be here. We really wanted them to be walking around. And some of the stories that Gino <laughs> told me, and I have some of them in print, some of them in old letters, uh, I still don't know. You know, was he putting on this this young country boy, or, or was he really? I mean, he told it in the nature of uh, confidential disclosure, and this is the first time I have ever spoken or disclosed some of the things that he told me about the visit, the, the uninvited visitors that he had come to his apartment and do outrageous things to prove that they were something other than human. Who Did you feel now that he was really being the humorous there, Brad? No, I didn't think he was being funny at all. And, I mean, he was scaring, scaring the crap out of me right then. Everything you're saying, Brad, it brought to mind something that happened to me that indirectly involved John. Quite a number of years ago, I was engaged to be married. And uh, uh, my fiancé lived uh, several counties away, so we'd do a lot of long-distance telephoning. And sure. she knew... She knew a little bit about uh, about my interest in, in UFOs and the unexplained, but she had never really asked me a whole lot about it. But one night we were on the phone, and she started asking me some questions. Now, she was a pretty strict Catholic, and I think she finally decided, because of her upbringing, that maybe she needed to probe into this a little bit to find out about the other side of my personality, so to speak. I was trying to explain some of this, and at the same time, I didn't want to get into it too deeply, but at one point, I mentioned John Keel, and... I started explaining to her uh, about some of his theories and ideas. As I was explaining this, and I don't think I've ever mentioned this on any radio show, I don't think I've ever mentioned this to more than a couple of people in my life. As I was explaining this and his name was invoked, there was a, a click on the phone. Now, she had a private line, so did I. An audible click. All of a sudden, there was this shriek that came over the telephone, and it was nasty. I mean, this was a very, very frightening thing. And it went on for a couple of seconds and then stopped. And I didn't say, I almost dropped the telephone when this happened. Denise, my fiance, she finally said, what was that? And I tried to laugh it off. I said, maybe some prankster. She said, but I have a private line. She said, and you have a private line. I said, yes. She said, I don't understand. As she said this, there was another click, and it happened again, only longer, louder, and scarier. When it stopped, she said, I think we need to end the conversation. I said, you're right, and we both hung up, and we never brought it up again. Business travel is a profitability killer. You know that. So do more and travel less with GoToMeeting, the easiest, most affordable online meeting service. With just a click, launch sales presentations, training sessions, product demos, or collaborative sessions right from your desk. GoToMeeting is so easy to set up and use, you'll have your first meeting running in seconds. Plus, hold as many meetings as you want for one flat rate. Free VOIP and phone conferencing included. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. 
We are talking to a collection of notables in UFO, paranormal, Fortean research. We'll take it from the other side, the other order, Kurt Southerly, Brad Steiger, Jim Mosley, Lauren Coleman, Jerry Clark, Tim Beckley, and David Vietney is here too. David? Indeed, sir. Yes, David, I want to ask you something. We tried a couple of times in his latter years to get John Keel on the show. Yeah. And you left a message on his phone line, and what happened? I think he called Tim up and said, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> I think that's what happened. You know, uh, no, I, I think I, I think I mentioned that you guys were going to call, if I remember correctly. Keel didn't like to do interviews because he had done so many of them, and no. it, it's kind of like me. I don't, you know, I'll, I'll come on a show. I love the, the you know, the talk uh, for an hour or two. Uh, I don't like to give lectures, so if people call, you know, I if I know you're calling uh, on the phone to leave a message because you want me to come to your group and leave a, uh, you know, give a talk, I probably won't call you back. Not because I have anything bad to say, just because I want to avoid the uh, the situation. And he did not like to do uh, interviews. I guess after you've done interviews for thirty five or forty years, kind of like maybe most of us have, you just kind of get, you know. Tired of it, and uh, he, he just he, that was not something that he enjoyed uh, doing, so he would avoid the subject if possible. And then that's where his sense of humor sometimes would come out, or supposed sense of humor, because he would say things that maybe sounded a little bit insulting or something, but maybe they weren't meant to be, you know. But yeah, he didn't like to give lectures. I had begun corresponding with uh, Ivan T. Sanderson in about 1963. I was writing a column, a weekly column, called Walk on the Weird Side in a tabloid, for a tabloid in Chicago. And Ivan actually wrote me a fan letter, and because he had been an idol of mine since I was young, I just, you know, that was like, you know, getting a message from God through the mail. And we began corresponding, and I became quite close to uh, Ivan and Alma, and then became friends with John, and then John and Ivan got into the weirdest kind of feud that I was right in the middle of. And here again, I don't know, because we know that Ivan was was ill uh, toward the end of his life, but uh, Keel was so angry because Ivan was accusing John of being a robot. He was accusing John of being an android. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I bet you heard that from Keel and not Sanderson. No, no. Oh, excuse me, excuse me. Yes, I read it from Keel. Uh, you got them too, Lauren? Well, I, I certainly got what was going on because I was friends with both of those guys. Right, right, was, I know. And it and it was always Keel that would come up with these projections and insights and paranoia from his point of view about what people were saying of him. But I talked to Sanders, and he said, I don't know what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> and so, well, you know. I, I had to broach it, too. I had to broach it, too, of course. Too. I now, in those days, like you said the, the other night, <laughs> another program, uh, those days, we all wrote to each other like three times a week. I mean, right, right. It was at least three times a week we're sending letters, and it was, 
just think how often we would have communicated if there had been Internet. But, of course, in those days, it was three letters a week, and it was just strange to get this running, uh, as you say, strange thing. And I remember John saying one time just how, and if Ivan didn't stop it, they were really going to have it out. You know, he is not an android, but I, I just, every once in a while, I think of that and just crack up. Kurt, you know, you were telling me the other day, and this becomes fascinating, that you and Keel and some other people actually took over Pursuit, which was the magazine that Ivan Sanderson's organization published. You took it over after he died. Is that correct? Maybe taking it over is a kind of a strong phrase, but yeah, after Ivan died, uh, myself and a guy named Charlie Wiedemann and John and a number of other people, most of the people from that were kind of that orbited around Ivan over in the uh, Columbia, New Jersey area. We started meeting at the uh, at the old farm, and basically John became uh, editor in chief for a brief period of time of Pursuit. And I, I think at one point he actually labeled me as a senior writer or something, which which is kind of ridiculous. But uh, we you know we would sit around and we would brainstorm about ideas and and try to continue the magazine. And it was around the same, I guess, uh, within about a year of all that starting, uh, John suddenly decided that he had to take a leave of absence. And as it turned out, he, I guess he went over to Scandinavia to do some research into a long-going UFO flap over there. And then things with the magazine kind of, it, it, things just sort of fell apart, not necessarily that the magazine wasn't being published, but the organization, I guess. And Lauren probably is much more versed on what happened in, in that period of time. But uh, the society that Ivan started really kind of disappeared, and John was one of the last people to try to make a real effort at maintaining that. And of course, with the pursuit, the, uh, the journal being the uh, the voice of the society. But the uh, the thing that I remember not so much the, the sitting down deciding what articles would go where and how, and how we could do this or how we could do that was John's sense of humor, which at the time was. He seemed at that point in his life to be very comfortable, very happy with himself. I know he was on a lot of medication because he carried his pillbox around with him, and he'd open this thing up, and it was compartmentalized. And he had all these different colored pills, and you have to take one for you know for malaria or something, one for something else, one for something else, and be popping these pills on a regular basis. But uh, he was just he was just a blast to be around, and of course he'd sit there and he'd. he'd tell stories and a lot of the stories had nothing to do with UFOs or even the paranormal but he would he would talk about some of his experiences back uh, when he was getting started and when he was doing his travels uh, abroad which led to the book Jadu. Mm. Lauren since you were referred to I guess you can contribute to this. <laughs> well I did want to jump in and sort of put a overall framework in in the way that I think that there were many different kinds of John Keels and that all people today are talking about sometimes he was a humorist, sometimes he was a bastard, sometimes he was a theorist. And I think that when people start talking about John without realizing that he was showing different faces to different people, they sometimes mistake, you know, oh, that's not the John Q I knew. Well, he really was very different. And, and a little bit of the, I mean, quite a bit information that, People don't want to go public with, but I'll talk a little bit. Uh, towards the end of his life, he was definitely suffering from dementia. You know, I, I have a psychiatric background, and I very much think that some of that early on was showing up. 
in some of his very harsh treatment of of old friends that he seemed to turn on. And anybody that reads uh, the Mothman Prophecies 2001 edition, his afterword is some of the most caustic verbiage that he's thrown at his old friend that, that I've seen in print from Keel. And he was allowed to get away with that because he was a godlike figure in the field. I mean, I, I still admire him, and I still remember the John Keel of, of, you know, the mid-60s that I knew, as well as the one that I called from uh, the Lowell Hotel in, at Point Pleasant in 2001 when we were both working on the movie promotion together. He had a contract with Sony Screen Gems to do interviews, and he just refused. So he would just get in that mindset sometime that he could do anything he wants wanted to and nobody could push him around and and towards the end of his life it, it became like that and we still can like him we still can admire him but i think we have to be realistic that that john keel really did evolve into a person that became very caustic i just wanted to see <laughs> if this was true i called tim beckley and told him that i had read in one of the entertainment magazines that they were doing a film of Mothman prophecies. Tim called John, and John allegedly did not know a thing about it. Now, I don't see well, how that had happened. They gave him out $80,000 immediately, and he went out and bought a Toyota Echo. Yeah, yes, yes, His, yes. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah. Well, no, that was later on, though. This was yeah, Lauren, you're jumping ahead. This was at the oh, very okay. beginning. Tim called him. John didn't know anything about it, but got an attorney, is the way I recall it. Oh, well, I can believe that. <laughs> well, that's Hollywood. For, well, you know, they had been discussing doing this, the, the Mothman prophecies for quite some time. I, as I recall, it went on and on for maybe uh, four or five uh, years. They would get together every once in a while and, and discuss it, and there were, there, there were new screenwriters and new uh, directors being uh, thrown about, and then I guess after a while, you kind of just you know put it on the back of uh, the burner. You know, you got an option, and you've given the option to somebody, and you're just waiting around to hear uh, whether, whether, it's going to ha you know, whether it's going to happen or not. Well, we should explain also to the listeners that when it comes to an option, that means you buy basically a preliminary right to do something with that title. You have first grab on it, but you could basically sit there, buy the rights, and then it expires in a few years, and you do nothing. But it means that nobody happens, else can do anything. That happens again and again. <laughs> oh, yeah. In Hollywood, sometimes it takes forever, no matter what kind of project you're talking about, to get something produced, and sometimes... It just never happens. As I understand it from John, the final go-ahead was Richard Gere had to get the okay from the Dalai Lama to go ahead and do the uh, do the part. And the Dalai Lama, uh, had, I guess, had read the book or was familiar with it or somebody had told him about it because of the fact that this is a winged creature, which is part of the, uh, the Buddhist background, the Garuda, the great Garuda. Garuda. Yeah, so that uh, that was the the final go ahead, and from there on out, they they started you know working on it. The you know neighbor is one of the hardest jobs in organizing this show on our websites. Was finding the right host to get everything online. We've used a number of these companies, and there are lots of good ones to choose from. But the very best is one and one internet. 
One and One Internet is part of United Online. It's a large European telecom company that's been in business since the 1980s. So you can bet they know what they're doing, and there are millions of individuals and companies out there who depend on One and One Internet to get online and stay online. Right now, One in One Internet is having a big special. From the cheapest email hosting package to the large dual quad-core server that we're using, you can bet that you'll get a full package of the services you really need at a price that's far lower than you might expect. From registering a domain to hosting a full-fledged business site, use the same host we do, One and One Internet. To get the latest special deals, point your browser to theparacast.com slash host. That's theparacast.com slash host for the best value in hosting your personal or business sites. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. are talking to Tim Beckley, Lauren Coleman, Jerry Clark, Kurt Southerly, Brad Steiger, Jim Mosley. I'm just scrambling the order so nobody's ego is affected. Remembering John Keel. Now, the point of it all is not just the interactions with this amazing guy, but also the various thoughts that influence so many people in the UFO field. Jerry, you and I, when we started out, we were teenagers and we thought UFOs were spaceships because that's what Don Kehoe told us. But Early on, we had a lot of impact from what John Keel had said. How did he influence your early thinking, Jerry? Well, I was young and impressionable. And uh, the thing that Keel had that nobody's commented on so far is this sense of absolute rightness. <laughs> he had a very strong personality. And if you yourself were somewhat unformed and intellectually untrained, it really made an impression on you, and you thought you have finally found the guy who's figured it all out. And then as you get older, you get more intellectually disciplined, you, you think better, you learn more. Keel doesn't look like that anymore, but he really had an effect on me at an early age. The one lasting thing that he did for me, I have to say, is that he wrote me one day, this was, we were started to be in contact about 1966 or so, 67. He said, there's a young guy who's your age, and he's an interesting guy, and you guys probably have a lot in common, and should get in touch. He's this kid from Decatur, Illinois. That started a lifelong friendship and a lifelong association and three books together. I'm talking, of course, about Lauren Coleman, who has been a brother to me. But that was the best thing that John Keel did for me. It had nothing to do with fortiness. It had to do with establishing you know, a lasting friendship. Now, let's look at the areas of UFO research that he dealt with, because he basically said a lot of the things that we believed, expected, theorized about were not true. Maybe you could mention specifically what some of these things were, Jerry. What Keel did, and, and um, he wasn't the first, actually what Keel was doing without crediting him, was picking up a lot of ideas that Trevor James Constable, who was an associate of Mead Lane of the Borderline Sciences Research Associates, which was a, a Southern California cult group, started up in the 40s and was talking about what we would call UFOs before the Ken Arnold sighting in 1947. 
constable was writing articles in the 1950s which said that contactees were not just a bunch of hoaxers and nuts, as was widely alleged, but that they actually had real experiences. But the the godlike Venusians were actually demonic entities assuming that identity. And you read some of Constable's stuff, for example, in Flying Saucer Review in the late 50s, you'll see exactly what Keel was saying later, except at a much lower volume. There wasn't the kind of red face, spittle-spewing invective that was characteristic of much of Keel's writing. Constable was writing about this at a, at a much lower volume level, but he was expressing the same ideas. What Keel did was focus everybody's attention on the really high strangeness phenomena as opposed to the, the, the core evidence that Keel's generation was interested in, which was the radar visual sightings and the ground traces and those sorts of things, the kinds of things that you could document scientifically and which, you know, not illogically led to a conclusion that maybe extraterrestrials are visiting the Earth. Keel kind of wanted to take, he didn't call himself a ufologist, he hated ufology, but he wanted to take the study of strange stuff really pretty much off the map into a really kind of extreme fringe pursuit where really science and even intellectual discipline were irrelevant. Keel was really not in the tradition of Ford, but more in the tradition of Tiffany Thayer as a fierce, classic, anti-intellectual and crank. Well, but how did he reconcile the physical evidence, the radar information, trace landing evidence, how did he reconcile that with the high strangeness aspect, or did he even try? Keel was a guy with a very strong personality, and he had a lot of ideas, most of them, frankly, fairly crazy. But simply by force of personality, and Keel certainly had a force of personality, he was able to persuade people that what he was saying was not illogical or crazy or, or devoid of really persuasive evidence, but it just... It sounded good, and uh, he was articulate in presenting it. But if you read carefully what he wrote, it, it really didn't make a whole lot of sense. I think all of us agree that very strange things happen in the world. If we didn't think that, none of us would be here talking about this. But what Keel made of it, I think, is, is really a problem, and also just simply tied in with his strange personality. Well, but of what he said, what can we take away that, that had value? I mean, for example... In watching an online interview of his, he talks about how there are specific years that seem to be inflection points in history. And he makes a very good argument for it. I mean, what, what do some of you gentlemen think about, for example, he talks about how in 1973 to 75, there was a tremendous flap uh, uh, of UFO activity around the world. And I know from my personal experience that I had a major UFO episode happen in 1973 in New Jersey, right right in that period when he said that there was a lot of stuff going on. So is that confirmation bias on my part, or is there veracity to his claims that there were these inflection years or years of extremely unusual activity? Is, is there something to that, do you gentlemen think? I'll just say quickly, the difficulty with doing things like that, of course, is we know that toward the end of every century, each generation thinks it is the last, and we certainly are in an apocalyptic period now. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea with the Wednesday theory or certain theories is it's very easy to project one's own personal experience so that things become real. Right. I, I do believe in cycles, cycles of time and cycles of climate, 
but but making strangeness fit into cycles. I've seen so many cycles that, that allege that, and I say, yeah, I had something strange happen then, but then on this date, I didn't. So again, I think that also has to be taken with a little um, intellectual distance. Jerry, why don't you pick up and then go uh, from there? Okay, I just wanted to briefly state that strange stuff happens in all places at all times. All times. It's happened forever, and it just, you know, it just depends on when people are paying attention to it. Media was definitely feeding off of uh, the uh, the whole UFO uh, concept and, and the strangeness during that period. And uh, of course, you know, you tend to think, well, if the media is playing it up, well, geez, it must be at a fever pitch. But as we know, who uh, us that have collected this material and done interviews and and collected all the strangeness for years, it, this this goes on every uh, day, and it's only at certain periods that it really seems to to pop up uh, and uh, as of uh, you know national. Uh, attention or something like that and uh, I think that uh, because Keel was writing a, a column uh, that was appearing all over the country and Jim was doing a convention and there had been a few sightings it seemed all you know as if everything was being whipped into a frenzy but probably wasn't much different than what was normally going on that nobody got reported you know Kurt you wanted to say something before I think Jerry made a valid point when he said that a lot you, these things are happening and it's often it often is when you're paying attention to it, that people really kind of look at it and say, well, maybe this is a cycle, maybe this is a flap. I, I kind of picked up on some of that over the 10 years or so that I was a newspaper man. The, the media would go in cycles, and, and of course you have the, the, the annual silly season during the, the summer dog days when presumably there's not a lot going on, and then they pick up more often on the esoteric things that were happening in the world. They're doing that less and less today. More and more of this is out over the internet, but the press, per se, and, and except maybe for local instances where you have, you know, local radio and TV picking up on maybe a, a UFO event or a small flap or something, they don't pay any attention to it. And it's, I still get people coming up to me all the time. In fact, this happened yesterday. A woman in a diner that I frequent near where I work, she actually mentioned John Keel. But she came up to me and she started talking because she, she knew me. She knew my, uh, a little bit about my background and she was asking me questions and she mentioned Keel. She said, yeah, I already died. I said, yeah, I said, that's true. And then she said, how come we don't hear anything more about, about UFOs? And I said, mm-hmm. I said, these things continue to happen. It's just that the media is not focusing on it. And because I think. Because it's the same story over and over as far exactly. as the media is concerned. Exactly. They get bored but, with but it. But as we were saying, and there, there's consensus here for those of us who study high strangeness that happens every day. I don't know, Jerry, if I still had the map up on the wall in my office in Decorah, but I, I had a huge map of the United States, and I spent, for that time, a huge amount of money with the largest clipping service in the United States yeah. to get every ghost report, every UFO report, and I would put different colored tacks. It was covered. It was covered. And yet people would say, why doesn't the press write about it? Well, I got every little county newspaper. I got every publication. (laughs) It was happening all the time. But the New York Times wasn't carrying it. Chicago Sun wasn't carrying it. But this material is happening all the time. So to try to find distinct cycles, I think... Maybe none of us live long enough to see them, but I think it's very difficult to try to delineate precise cycles. 
with, with regard to this, I, I see a real distinction. I think there there are cycles and that you sometimes can see them. And, you know, Keel mentions in his tape about the cycle in 1848 when there was revolutions all over the world. But I think the intellectual leap that, that Keel would do was then immediately say the elementals were behind this and it's some kind of constructed, manipulated thing from the other side of the fourth dimension. And I think that's where... He failed. You know, he, he maybe pointed to some things that we all could agree to, but then when he get, got into the intellectual theorizing and feel, felt that he was the only one that knew that answer was true, that's where we all kind of started saying, well, we don't have to agree with you. And so his legacy will probably not go, carry on in that direction, except among a small British collection of psychosocial, you know, ufologist, so to speak. Well, may I interrupt uh, for a moment here? People uh, focus on the fact that Keel and I didn't get along. I didn't really know him all that well after the 60s, although he kept writing into Saucer Smear somewhat sarcastic letters, and I'd answer him uh, in a similar way. But uh, listening to all of you people, I think you people, most of whom were close friends of his, are all willing to admit that he was uh, very peculiar, very arrogant, uh, very pushy with his views, very intolerant of other views, uh, had the borderline uh, fantasies perhaps, and in his latter years even suffered from dementia, one of you mentioned. And uh, so I wonder what it is about Keel uh, that we should admire. For, for myself, I admire him probably only because he was one of the first major figures to get off of the nuts and bolts saucers uh, kick, so to speak, and get into something more complex, which is probably a lot closer to what is really going on. I think in a general way, the fact that he reached into other directions and other realms in looking for the answers, I think that is his probably a sole contribution to the whole subject and in regard to his personality it seems even his best friends admit that it was not a pleasant one have i summed up things uh, properly at all well i'll tell you what on part two of the show we'll get more into detail about the meaning of his theories and where they hold up and where maybe they don't hold up. So for part two, we will again visit with Tim Beckley, sometimes known as Mr. UFO, but someone who's been involved in UFO and paranormal research for many, 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 many years. Lauren Coleman, cryptozoologist, Fortean investigator. We have Jerome Clark, we'll call him a UFO historian, and he's written some excellent books covering the history of the UFO field. We have Jim Mosley, the editor of Saucer Smear, and of course known, according to John Keel, as the boil on the ass of ufology. That's why we call this show explicit. Brad Steiger, who's written two or three thousand books on the strange and unknown. Or am I closer? Is it now four thousand, Brad? It's good, close to four thousand. Okay. And Kurt Southerly, who's also written articles and books on the subject and been around the field for quite a number of years. More to come on part two of the PowerCast.
Fate magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We are back with our special John Keel Memorial Session, which presents the good, the bad, and maybe sometimes the ugly, but we're covering it all. Tim Beckley, Lauren hey. Coleman, Jerry Clark, Jim Mosley, Kurt Southerly, Brad Steiger, even David Bietney, who talked to John never, except by leaving a message on his phone machine. Well, as the one guy here who didn't know him well, I think we have a unique opportunity here to... To, to speak to all you fine gentlemen who, who did know him, and as someone who didn't know him personally, uh, I'd like to put a question to all of you, given that you all spent so many hours speaking with, with John Keel. Of all the many interests the guy seemed to have, wh how did he get pulled into esoterica? How did that happen? Do, do any of you have stories about uh, him conveying to you uh, an experience at a really young age that made him yeah. realize... What, what was good? Yeah, at the age of 10, uh, this is Tim, yeah, at the age of 10, he had a poltergeist in his attic. And apparently, just like the uh, the Fox sisters who were able to communicate with the spirit in their house by wrappings, he did pretty much the same. So this really? was an early uh, experience. And then I know he had, uh, we one time at the Fortean Society uh, of New York here, uh, we uh, went on a, uh, a, a little mini expedition. We went over to the Nicholas Rorick Museum. I don't know if any of you know who Nicholas Rorick uh, was. I guess probably you do. He was an adventurer and uh, a painter, and uh, I guess a writer sort of in the uh, the vein in the same period of, as Madame Blavatsky. And mm. uh, once in the uh, the mountains in Tibet, or maybe it was the Himalayas, I guess, uh, he had a UFO sighting. Well, somehow that impressed uh, John because when John was in Egypt around 1953 or 1954, he had a UFO sighting near the Aswan Dam. And I think at one point he described it. I remember reading about it. I don't know if it was one of his books or an interview that he did. He said there were a group of people, uh, maybe as many as 50, 60 people around there, uh, looking at this object. And I think this is where he first started kind of like realizing that there was more than just a physical aspect to this because he questioned the people as to what they saw and there were a variety of uh, uh, of different experiences that these people were having. He said to him, it looked like a Saturn-shaped object. In other words, a uh, a sphere uh, in the in the middle with a ring uh, around it that was rotating. But other people saw other things, and also he thought that the uh, the object was much closer to him, perhaps uh, within three or four hundred feet. While some of the people, other people that he questioned. Uh, in fact, while they were watching this, said that it was much higher in the sky. So I think this is maybe at that point. You know, he was he was already doing a, um, a radio show uh, while he was in the armed forces. Called I think it was called Strange Things in the Sky or Things in the Sky. So he he was already uh, you know like uh, 
Sheik's not uh, fixated with with this um, since he was a child. I mean, since pretty much just like we had our own uh, unusual experiences growing up, or at least I did anyway. Uh, so did John, apparently. But I don't think he's dwelled on that so much uh, in his uh, you know in his own material. That's why I was asking the question because I figured yeah. you guys know better than anybody. Yeah, but he did have these early experiences, and he did see a, a number of UFOs. But that was the most uh, uh, I, I guess the one that made the most impression was the one in in Egypt there. This is uh, Jim again. At the close of the first segment, I threw out a statement and or question to the rest of you, saying, in effect, that uh, I think we should admire John Keel because long before it became somewhat fashionable, I think, as it is now, to look beyond the uh, nuts and bolts explanation uh, for UFOs, and uh, look at something more esoteric. I, I think there's no question about the fact that uh, Hill, along with Valet and a few others, was a pioneer in looking in uh, other more complex directions as to what the meaning of all of this weirdness is. I think we must give John Keel credit for that, but I think we all seem to be agreed that he had a forceful and uh, sometimes extremely disagreeable or and or confusing personality, and uh, uh, that is interesting indeed, but uh, not uh, particularly uplifting, and uh, that's well. the way I would look at Keel, and I would... Uh, uh, let any of you uh, comment on my comment. You know, I think that everyone on the panel have exception because we are all uh, amiable, uh, congenial. We're we're always cheery. <laughs> Aren't we? Uh, we are never. We are never down. We are never arrogant. And uh, what are we talking about here again? <laughs> Well, I have to say real quickly, I mean, Jim, you were describing me. I mean, at, at this point in, in, in the, the field of esoteric, this is Biedny, yeah. I mean, you're, yeah, you're describing me to a T, man. Uh, that's, uh, I'll take it as a compliment. That's one of the reasons, I mean, I, I sort of feel a, a kinship to Keel. And, you know, it, yeah, we all have our, our good days. We all have our bad days. I mean, certainly all of us here can, can say that, but... You know, ultimately, what you said is right, though. The man did help a lot of people expand their thinking about this stuff. And I think in, in many ways, that's sort of, I mean, I'll, I'll give a pass to people like Timothy Leary, who I once met and, and, and watched speak, and I was horrified. And yet I have to admit that, you know, the, the things that he did besides him, that was just my one experience with him. But uh, And I, I found a lot of people that felt the same way, but at the same time, you know, maybe history will look at him a little differently. I, one thing I wanted to comment on, though, that I feel is real important and why I was so thrilled when you all agreed that you would come on this episode was that, especially just looking at the last few weeks of uh, the number of people who have passed from this earth and the fact that, you know, the New York Times did not run an obit on Keel. I, I feel really badly about that. And I, in fact, wrote them a very strongly worded email about that because, you know, the way I, I, I told a couple of friends of mine, you know, a, a, a dancer with a pet monkey dies, and it's like world news, but yet this guy who, with his flaws, I mean, you know, he's right on the edge of trying to deal with stuff that's right on the edge of human understanding. Well, to, if there was just, no obituary in the Times about Keel. It must have been because most of his work was done 
quite a number of years ago, and as we all know, in recent years he did much less and would tend to be forgotten. Well, it's part of it, Jim, but I think it, I think it also has to do with the fact that he was a phenomenologist. He was a ufologist, whatever term you want to give him, and, and the Times is not going to look kindly on on that kind of endeavor, and they're not going to put a lot of effort into something like that. Hmm. Uh, it's just well, I, I don't think AP, a lot of small papers would bother. The AP picked up on it, and Newsday did, and I think that his fame around uh, the Richard Gere 2000... I think if it wasn't for Ratzel, that the AP would never have even picked up on it, because I, I would believe that he probably called the AP because he was the only person quoted in there. Mm. Yeah, well, I don't understand. Who was the person that called the AP? Ratzel Sloman, he was uh, one of John's uh, friends. Uh, he was uh, wrote some of the National Lampoon movies and things. Oh, okay. Very well-known writer, a very... Uh, Chronicler of Bob Dylan. Yeah. Right. Just the point is, I just think it, it, it's sort of sad, and, and you know that's why I want to thank all of you for for coming here and talking about him today, because uh, I have this, this sort of sad feeling that he will be forgotten for the short term, but I think in the future, uh, his works will be looked at in a slightly different light. And, and actually, I want to segue into another question for you gentlemen. Of, of his writings, which one would you pick as the one that anybody not familiar with Keel should read first? Jerry, would you please take Lost that? Lost Man Prophecies. That's really the only book of Keel's worth reading. <laughs> <laughs> well, that uh, sums it up. <laughs> oh no! Uh, I'll, I'll, throw, I'll throw in strange creatures of time and space. Yes, that's what I would say. Right, definitely. You know, believe it or not, I really think that to to really think and know Keel's mind, you have to read Operation Trojan Horse. Yep, mm -hmm. that would be. Yeah. The fallacy with with the Mothman prophecies is it's more fiction than it's real. Mm -hmm. I think that he really, I agree. How so, Lauren? You say it's more fiction than real in what sense? As I, you know, as I've talked to some people recently about this, I think that book, and I, I do agree with Jerry, and by the way, I'm very happy that Keel did introduce me to Jerry, and that is the one shining light. Uh, this relationship stuff that Keel did is really can't be forgotten. That's important. But it's almost as if Keel took all of these stories, you know, Mount Misery, Point Pleasant, New York, Washington, D.C., and he threw them into a blender. And anybody that's unsophisticated reading that book thinks that they're chronologically and spatially all happening together so that you can have movies like Mothman Prophecies come out. And everybody thinks that Indira Cold was part of the Mothman Prophecies, you know, part of part of Mothman. And I get still interviewed on radio shows that don't know any better that say, well, didn't Mothman talk over the phone? And stuff like that. <laughs> and Keel's setup really shows that. You know, it's really... <laughs> I, I heard he had the rock album out, though. <laughs> exactly. So... <laughs> Again, I would say Operation Trojan Horse, as we said. And then I'll go for Strange Creatures of Time and Space. Mothman, I'm sorry, did did not touch me. You know, we should tell our listeners who aren't familiar with these books because they've been largely out of print for a number of years. Operation Trojan Horse, Brad, that does it for you. Tell us something about the book. Well, I was saying uh, that would. I think uh, I, 
was it Lauren who said, or someone said, that that kind of outlined, maybe it was Kurt, I don't know, one of you guys said that that outlined... Okay, outlined his thinking, his his mode of thought, his uh, operation, (laughs) the way that he would progress, the way that he would see, and I think gives an overview of his hypothesis, his general thesis. And uh, I just like uh, strange creatures of time and space because it just covered the entire area of high strangeness. What do you uh, all think of his book, J.D.? Uh, well, that's the first one I read. That's the first one I read. That was that was actually one of the last I read because I had difficulty finding a copy. I finally found oh. a hardcover in a used bookstore. I got it when it first came out. We're a little, we're a little bit different in age, Kurt. So. <laughs> Hang on there, Brad. Kurt, what was the book about? It was a, a loosely knit collection of magazine pieces that he wrote when he was uh, uh, running around in the Middle East when he was discharged from the uh, from the army in the uh, 1940s. I think it was around 48, 49. He stayed over in Egypt, and he used Cairo as his base of operation, and he, he traveled all over. He did, he did some pretty crazy things. I mean, of course, this is in keeping with his character. He had himself buried alive at one point to experience it and to write about it. And as I recall, he, he recounts this in Jado, and he actually told me about this at one point. He said he was down there for what seemed like forever. And he said, you're down, they basically had a six-foot-long hole that was about three feet deep and a couple of feet wide, and they crammed him in and put planks over the top, dumped a lot of dirt on top, and there was a cord going down into the into this enclosure. And once he couldn't, he they, they said, when you can't handle it any longer, tug on the cord and we'll dig you out. Well, he was down there, and he started imagining worms crawling in and eating him and, and you know, the, the whole thing caving in and him suffocating to death. And he finally he, he started tugging on the cord, only it, it was caught on something and it didn't move. And he kept tugging and tugging and tugging and finally heard the sound of shovels. When he got out, he'd been down there for 30 minutes. And it seemed like he'd been down there for you know half a day. But he, he uh, allegedly he played Russian roulette with the real-life Alibaba uh, in order to get an interview with the guy. He, uh, he ended up over in the Himalayas, and I think Lauren probably has a lot of information about this. How track. did he get the money to make those trips? He, but no, he, well, he admits that he was, uh, you know, uh, very poor in those days. Even, but he did have an he did have an agent, and, and they would uh, send him a check every uh, couple of weeks. He he said that he would check into the uh, the most expensive hotel that he. Which he could find, and even though he didn't have any money in those days, they never asked for a credit card because there were none, and they didn't necessarily ask for money up front uh, either. But they figured since he was an American and he had an American passport, he must uh, have uh, money. So every uh, you know couple of weeks or so, the agent would send him a few bucks, and he'd have enough to to go on to the next uh, the town. Uh, but he kind of you know lived off the uh, you know the land uh, so to speak. Uh, he stiffed the hotel, uh, is what it, you're telling me. Well, he ended up being deported from. Uh, from Cairo uh, simply because he'd become completely broke. Uh, his, his agent was Marty Singer and I actually had some contact with Marty uh, at the start of my own writing career. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked. We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, 
separating signal from noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. Hi, this is Nick Pope. You're listening to The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're doing a good, bad, ugly, whatever it is about John A. Keel. We've got Brad Steiger, Kurt Southerly, Jerry Clark, Jim Mosley, Tim Beckley, and Lauren Coleman. What's happening here is every so often, entities who are present cause these connections to disappear. Like, Lauren, you disappeared temporarily. Was that some kind of paranormal phenomenon? I, I'm not sure. I have a feeling it's a phenomenon called... He has called the power the to cloud men's minds so they cannot hear him. <laughs> that was John Keel, not can, Lamont Cranston. And when you consider ours, they're pretty clouded to begin with. There you go. Now, yeah, I wanted to say out. about Jadu. When that first came out, I was still teaching in college, and that seemed intensely romantic to me. Let me say that. I mean, here's right. this guy traveling. That, that's what I wanted to do, you know. All right, yeah. Brad, we're going to date you here. I have a copy of, of it here. The copyright on Jadu or Jadu is 1957. That's right. <laughs> Brad was, what, 78 then? Yes. The, the thing is, Lauren Coleman, I think he was was the fellow who said that Brad was the mild-mannered English professor who at night would go down to his office and write. Well, that was exactly right. And I thought, now this Keel character traveling all over the world, having these adventures, that that would be really neat. And, and so that inspired me in that sense to, uh, well, I haven't gone quite as many places as he has, or I haven't been buried in tombs and so forth. But I have uh, replicated uh, a lot of the travel and a lot of the kind of adventures. So that was a big inspiration. That, that, that's something very positive that I'd like to say about Keel's work and, and that very first Jadu. Well, I'll tell you something. Let me give you the devil's advocate approach here. Do we know? that this really happened. Obviously, he stiffed hotels, he was deported from a country and all that stuff. Did he really do these things or just write yeah. them down? For what it did to me, you know, what what was the difference? At least he wrote. He had this type of adventure story. Uh, we could say, um, you know, some of Rudyard Kipling has inspired me a great deal. It's supposed to be based on actual cases, yet we know there's fiction thrown in. How many people do the fact fiction kind of uh, writing? It, it's, a, it's a strange thing. The, the only problem is, of course, when you say it is nonfiction, then it is a no-no to throw in fiction unless you can somehow indicate this is how I felt or this is how I wish it had gone. So that, that's kind of an intellectual dilemma that comes up, I think, for all of us. Well, he was. He wrote Mothman Prophecies is... is Fortiana's in cold blood, and I think in many ways he very much tried to do that. Tried to write the great American Fortian, you know, novel as a novel or something. 
Yeah. Lauren, I was just about to open my mouth to say exactly what you just said. I think oh, really? the reason the Mothman Prophecies is really a kind of novel and really engaging for that simply as a writing experiment. I think it is far and away the most successful thing that Keel wrote. Yes, you can learn his thinking from strange creatures or Operation Trojan Horse, but just purely in terms of of reading enjoyment and a successful writing experiment, Mothman Prophecies is indeed a sort of Fortean in cold blood. Does anyone remember how that started, the, the very first sentence? I, I have it right here. This is... It's I mean, something is, like it was a dark and stormy night. Pretty, pretty much. <laughs> let, let me read this. This is falls in exactly with, with what you all are saying. Fingers of lightning tore holes in the black skies as an angry cloudburst drenched the surrealistic landscape. It was 3 a.m. on a cold, wet morning in late November 1967, and the little houses scattered along the dirt road winding through the hills of West Virginia were all dark, some seen unoccupied in the final stages of decay, others were untainted, neglected, forlorn. The whole setting was like the opening scene of a grade B horror film from the 1930s. That's the first paragraph. Okay, we had someone portray Truman Capote, who wrote uh, In Cold Blood. Who are we going to have portray John Keel, then, in writing The Mothman Prophecy? <laughs> <laughs> well, does anyone know why he was deported from uh, Egypt? He was kicked out because he had no money. Oh. He was, and I got this from Marty Singer years later. Uh, Tell people who Marty Singer was. Marty Singer was, at, at the time I met him, he was the editor of Saga's UFO Report. Er, at an earlier stage, he was an agent, a literary agent, and he was the guy that was marketing Keel's articles or alleged articles or whatever they were that he was sending from overseas. Marty would sell them to the men's magazines, True, Saga, Argosy, whatever, and wire the money back to John. And John was literally living hand to mouth. He would get a check. He would move on. At one point, I think he actually had to sell his typewriter or something, and you know, just to, to keep moving. And finally, the authorities caught caught up with him, and they shipped him back over here. And one of the things he told me, and this kind of goes back to his interest in some of these things. I remember he he said at one point that when he came back to the States, it was around 65, 66, actually, I'm sorry, it was earlier, it was about 63 when he got back here. The whole UFO thing was starting to gain a lot of national publicity, it was a big flap going on, or whatever you want to refer to it as, and Keel told me, he said, he said, I got back here, and he said, I thought, okay, I'm a pretty smart guy, I can figure this all out, and of course, that kind of was his impetus for getting involved in all of this, and then after that, everything kind of really got uh, got pretty crazy, you know, with the whole uh, Point Pleasant, uh, West Virginia experience, and uh, and the the MIB activity or alleged MIB activity in and around New York and Long Island. What was the last book that Keel wrote, and what year was it? Uh, who could tell me that? Wow, I'm not well, even sure I know. I can tell you State that. Magazine put a compilation together called The Best of John Keel, which was in many ways no different than what Keel had done himself because he oftentimes would just string together, you know, articles of and call it a book. And what, what, what I mean, you, none of us have ever done that. He did a book for a muck? What, what year was that before the fate anthology? Well, let's uh, just, uh, I'm reading from Wikipedia here. He had. Um, after the Mothman Prophecies in 75, you have the Eighth Tower in 75, Disneyland of the Gods in 88, 
And then what you've got is um, the Complete Guide to Mysterious Beings in 94, revised version of Strange Creatures from Space and from Time and Space, and then the best of John Keel in 2006. So it looks like Actually, Disneyland of the stra- we, we took these uh, creatures from time and space and pasted it up and put it out as a giant booklet, and that was Strange Mutants. All right, well, then you had another iteration. Yeah. Which do you think was John's worst book? And we talked about what we thought was his best book. Yeah, I, I know that was the one that sold the least copies. It's a terrible book. Which book? Eight Power. Okay, guys, we got to tell these listeners here what these books are. What was the Eighth Tower about? Who wants to summarize it in 10,000 words or less? Well, I read it, but I couldn't summarize it. Jerry, can you summarize it? <laughs> okay, Jerry, it's your fault. You do it. <laughs> well, as I recall, it's been a long time since I cracked open the, the covers. It was uh, not about... You know, weird stories and weird phenomena, but Keel's kind of overall reading, not only of anomalies in the paranormal, but just sort of like how these things control the world and all history. And it was, you know, I really enjoy entertaining crank literature. I do not enjoy unentertaining crank literature. <laughs> and Eight Tower virtually defines unentertaining crank literature. And I grant you that you know, it was not all you know that entertaining. How it was, you know how it was written. And the Eighth Tower is all of the parts of Operation Trojan Horse that his editor said take out of there. And now that, I believe. Both, he's, he got so pissed <laughs> off, he put them all together and got somebody else to publish it as the Eighth Tower. Well, wasn't it the same publisher? Wasn't it? That doesn't very, matter. Saturday <laughs> Review? Saturday, Saturday Review Press, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I believe Thanks. the uh, Trojan Horse was uh, Putnam. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that, that's funny. I remember. I remember the publishers more than I do the content. <laughs> <laughs> one, one thing we should mention: Marty Singer's name has come up a number of times. Some of us only once. <laughs> oh, I heard it more than once. Oh, no, I did a couple of things for Marty Singer when he was doing Saga's UFO yeah, report. and I was just going to say, Marty Singer and Tim Beckley's magazines kept a lot of us alive for a while. Well, exactly. you know, I, you know, I was, I was. Just saying, where is where is Marty Singer when you need him now? That's yeah. <laughs> I, I've that said that a number of times. Yeah, uh-huh. that was even true. If, for me. if only he would have paid uh, a uh, little Kurt, you're saying that Kurt, you're saying you work with Marty Singer too? Well, yeah, I, uh, in the uh, oh shoot, when was it the mid '70s or thereabout? I went, I struck out and decided to freelance full time, and I was basically living off the money I was making from different. Uh, magazine articles devoted to the unexplained, and of course, I sold a number of them to to Saga. <laughs> Remember, I sold one to one to Argosy, and they they never even acknowledged receiving one day. I walking around, Keel used to go walk into the newsstand, pick up a copy of of an Argosy UFO special, and there's my article headline on the on the uh, the front cover. <laughs> and I think, if, if I recall correctly, didn't I come to Eugene mentioned it, and then you represented yourself as my attorney to get my check? <laughs> well, a lot of those magazines had very strict standards. I mean, they, they would, and, and especially uh, instant. And strict standards when it came to pay, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Kurt, did you ever get paid? I forget. 
Yes, they, they uh, after you talked to them, they must have took you very seriously uh, and they signed me a well, check. You know, you know what happened, though? At, at one point, all those magazines like True, Saga, and Argosy, they had, uh, I think True had a circulation of about a million and a half. Argosy was about 900,000. Saga piddled along maybe at around 325 or something like that. Can you imagine Fate Magazine or some other magazine selling that amount of copies uh, today? I mean, it's, 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 it's unheard of, you know. But in their heyday, they paid well. I, I, I mean, the True Magazine, I think, paid like, you know, $2,000, $2,500, uh, and they paid right away. But as the circulation slipped, they changed ownership. They were they became pickup magazines where they started using our articles that we had written uh, years before. And uh -huh. in the case of uh, Saga Magazine, the editor, after Marty Singer, didn't like me, so he took my name off the article. I mean, that's how that's how bad things uh, got. And I remember one time I went to one of these publishers. It was another guy, Adrian Lopez, who uh, uh, did a, a couple of true UFO specials. He became the publisher of True later on. His big magazine was Sir, which is a kind of a cheesecake pinup book. But at, at one point, Adrian had an empire of about maybe 40 uh, magazines. He owned a building over on the uh, on the east side, like on 27th Street, and he sold part of the building to the American Communist Party. Uh, but then when you went to see the getting, you used to pay pretty quickly, but then towards the end when the sales went down, you had to go fight for your money. I'd go over to the office, and nobody pretended that he could speak English. <laughs> well, you need to be multilingual. <laughs> Is your IRS tax problem ruining your life? Hi, I'm Ronnie Deutsch. Don't be another IRS victim, and please don't give up hope. Call me today and let's do something about it. If you have tax problems, call Ronnie Lynn Deutsch, a professional tax corporation, at 800-515-4541. That's 800-515-4541 for your free and confidential tax analysis. That's 800-515-4541 for your free tax guide. Call Ronnie Deutsch's law firm and speak with them today. Not available in New York. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Lauren Coleman, Jerry Clark, Jim Mosley, Tim Beckley, Kurt Southerly, Brent Steiger, joining us for this memorial tribute to John Keel and his influences and certainly not getting paid for articles from publishers. We've all undergone that. I know I wrote an interview with Major Donald Kehoe that was published. I don't think he ever got paid for it. The publication disappeared. The publisher disappeared. He's probably still out there working for a rival radio broadcast, I think. <laughs> All right, now I'm going to ask a, a completely left-field question because uh, we've got a collection of gentlemen here that knew this man. Personal relationships. No, any, I never any... had one with him. No, no, no. Stop. 
Well, now, I, I saw John, uh, you know, he, we both being in New York here, he would come into the neighborhood, and when he had his 14 society meetings, the meetings were right next door to uh, where I am located. And, in fact, the building was demolished just a couple of uh, months ago. It had been condemned where the 14 society meetings were, were held, you know, and, and I was on the street uh, watching them demolish the building, and as the walls caved in, here came all these papers and books off the shelf that were still in this building that had been condemned eight or ten years before. And I said uh-huh. to myself, well, there are probably some valuable notes and stuff mm-hmm. flickering down here from the, uh, you know, from the, uh, the meetings and all. But John and I knew pretty much each other socially, and I think the reason that we got along fairly well is because we seldom talked about UFOs. Uh, we both enjoyed movies. Uh, in fact, I remember one time back in the uh, the early uh, 80s, I guess it was, we took a trip into Times Square, and this was before it became a businessified, and it was still pretty uh, hardcore uh, the, 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 the grotto or ghetto or whatever it was, you know. And um, we went to see a movie, which is still one of my favorites, and I think John and I laughed about this for years. We went to see Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Oh, that's high class. And, and then we often we'd often get together just to chew the fat, and we spent hours on the telephone talking about not much of anything, just chatting and having a good time, and perhaps even talking about some of the personalities in the in the field and how we might have thought about them during that particular day or something, you know. Uh, also, too, uh, the one great thing that I remember about John. I had a severe attack of kidney stones, and I was in the hospital. John, outside of a, a girlfriend or two, John was the only person who came and visited with me and sat there for five hours. And, you know, I always felt bad when he, uh, towards the end here when he was sick and in and out of the hospital. No one ever called me to tell me where he was so that I could visit him. Mm. Well, he wouldn't let anybody know. He didn't want visitors. He well, there were, certain, there were certain people who knew where he was. No, no, there were, but... yeah. His instructions to them was to not yeah. tell anybody because he was afraid that fans would show up, which was, you know, different than what the other message he put out, which was that he was so alone. So yeah. it was yeah. part of the counter- he wanted to, Didn't he want to be left alone, or especially in his latter years? I think so. I, yeah. I had the strange experience, at least it seemed strange to me, of keeping close communication with John and then all of a sudden I got the word that uh, communicate with me only through Tim Beckley now I mean just just like that you, you remember that Tim well, I, uh, I don't, I don't know if that, I, uh, I don't remember that exactly, Brad. But you know, towards the end, the phone was disconnected, or you couldn't leave a message, or you weren't sure whether you were uh, getting the right phone number, uh, uh, even. You know, uh, but eventually, he always got back to me. I mean, a couple of months would slip yeah. by. Normally, it was only a couple of weeks, you know. Uh, but then it got further and further and further apart, and then it was never. Well, then Sherry and I went to New York City. Pam, I think it was one of your conferences, and John was there, and also um, NBC Television was there, 
And they wanted to uh, do an interview with John and myself on the men in black. Uh Now, here again, as Sherry remembers him as very kind and very gracious. And he was very kind and very gracious uh, while we were together doing the conference, while we were together doing the uh, interview. And then I I think that's the last time I ever saw John personally. And then it was... Uh from that time, I communicated through Tim. After writing three letters a week for years, you know. Well, you know, now, John always, I always considered John always did me favors, a lot of favors. I mean, kind of, you know, he didn't enjoy giving lectures and hated doing it, but yet he always spoke whenever I was having a program put together. In fact, uh, we did a uh, we did a, a, a program down in Pittsburgh, and they'll ask me why I picked Pittsburgh. Except when I was doing con- why did you pick Pittsburgh? Since you asked, you know, you know when I was doing uh, conferences on a pretty regular basis, maybe four or five uh, in a, a year, I realized that there were certain towns you could control the media. You certainly cannot control the media in New York. You can't get a paragraph in the paper. You can't do anything in Los Angeles. Chicago is pretty dead, but there are certain towns that are always looking for stories. Phoenix, medium-sized, you know, not super, super big cities, but you don't want to pick Podunk, uh, you know, or Appleton, Wisconsin either, right? Anyway, Pittsburgh seemed like a place. There had been some UFO sightings. It's not far from Ohio, blah, blah, blah. So I thought, well, let me do this. I put a lot of energy uh, into it, and there was also a nucleus of uh, UFO activity there. There was one or two uh, UFO groups. Uh, anyway, the conference was went over mediocre. I, I mean, I think maybe we had 130 people there, which for all the publicity that we had, including every day on Good Morning Pittsburgh, you would have thought that there would be more people. But John went down. I don't know. I think I paid him $100 or whatever it was. He went down by train. We put him on the put him on the train at uh, Penn Station, uh, you know, like at uh, 7 o'clock in the morning, and uh, we took a van down because we had a lot of books and equipment and so forth and so on, and I think the van, even though uh, it got a flat tire and fell apart uh, in uh, Harrisburg or something like that, got there probably at the same time as the train did because as we were uh, pulling into Pittsburgh, here comes the train and we could see John at the window, and he gave his talk and went back. Uh, on the train, and I think probably bitched about it for years. But I, I can't say that I I can't say that I blame him in this in, in this uh, case because it should not take uh, ten or eleven hours to take the train to Pittsburgh. But I believe that's how long it took, if not longer. <laughs> did it really cost that much more to go by plane, or did he not like going by plane? Uh, well, I don't know. He wanted. Uh, I, I can't remember. Uh, I think towards the end he didn't like to fly, but I can't remember him uh, making a point of that. Uh, and you know he was a pilot. Maybe he wanted to take. We like to train. I mean, John liked to train. I've always liked to take the train. I guess he figured it would be a nice train ride. But of course, train rides often turn into nightmares. Hmm. Kurt, you, you know, said John he was, was a, a pilot. Yeah, he was a pilot. Uh, at least uh, earlier on when he was in his 30s and 40s, uh, he had taken flying lessons and he uh, got his pilot's license. And that was one of the things we talk about because I was having uh, been in the Air Force. I was a crew chief on fighters. And one day we got talking about airplanes. And that's when I discovered the guy was a flyer. He didn't like didn't to fly it. after 9-11 because on 9-11, John was scheduled to fly to Point Pleasant to be in the documentary for Science Fiction Channel. And on 9-11, he... You know, got up, got ready to go, and then, of course, the Twin Towers came down. 
and John swore after that that he did not want to fly. He went ahead and did a couple flights, but I talked to his his sister this week, and she said that as far as she knew, John was definitely afraid of flying in his later years and wouldn't come down to Florida, wouldn't come to see family in upstate New York unless he could drive there. He, he had me? a car. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, I, uh, if I remember correctly, he even had a scooter for a while. And and we're not talking about the many, many years ago. We're talking about within the last, what, six or seven years, I think. That's a hard image well, with, to get in my mind. With his Moss Band Properties money, That's he right. a, a, a Toyota Echo. Uh-huh. And he decided, you know, pay off his bills, take a few friends to dinner, buy a car, and then all his money was gone. But that's what he did with it. And and so he went, after 9-11, he actually took, got in his car, went out to Perry, New York, and stayed out there for several weeks because he was scared to death to live in New York anymore. And he told everybody, I'm going to move out of New York. I'm going to That's move right. to a sunny, yep. sunny area. And yet he never could motivate never himself did, to move out of yep. New York. Right, Jim, you had something to say. Uh, this is Jim trying to ask Tim a question. You and I went by car once with Keel to a convention of yours in some uh, northeastern city. Do you remember which city and when that was? We drove with Keel, and he had to stop to eat all the time. We only did this once. Do you remember uh, when that was and what city uh, you had that convention? I you sure? You sure it was one of my conferences? Yeah, yeah. It could have been uh, Baltimore or it could have been Pittsburgh. Well, no, like uh, I say, I know he, t- I know he took the train uh, to uh, Pittsburgh, oh, and it, I only did that program uh, once. How about Cleveland? I don't think it was Cleveland, uh, but we drove together in a car. We stayed a couple of nights. I remember uh, the crowd was not nearly as good as it was supposed to be. Something yeah. had gone wrong with the publicity. Uh, Jim, this is Lauren. Yes. Jim, the first, the first time I met you was with John Keel in 1973 at an Info Fort Fest conference. And we were sitting around talking in the lobby, and yes. you and John were going off to go see the strippers that night. Do you remember that? I don't remember that. Lawrence, the only time I remember meeting you, of course, my memory is not perfect, but I met you at, I think, American University, it was called, in, in Washington, right. D.C., right. uh, at a, uh, wasn't um, MUFON holding their... No, no, it was the International Fortean Organization. They had one year there, they rented this huge place, I think, was it, was that the yeah. university or something? Right. And they had all these, like, booze and things, but there were no, there were no, there was nobody in attendance. Right. The last exactly. time I, I that's saw... Not, that's, <laughs> a, that's not unusual for a, a, a UFO or Fortean conference, I think. Uh, I, I think I it was John's diabetes, wasn't it, that caused him to eat so often? Yes. Yeah. Is that why he had so much trouble with his eyesight in the last years? Yeah, he had cataract uh, problems. He had cataracts, and then he had surgery in which they left Major surgery, surgery, and they messed that up. Yeah. I was going to say, I've had cataract surgery that went perfectly. I mean, I don't know. Usually it does. Not with John. Not with John. Not with John. Nothing went right with John, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I hate to say this, but men start to realize at about 40 that we're not so young anymore. 
I think it hits us when we start hearing about the importance of prostate health. Well, your prostate is right down there near your bladder. So if it's unhealthy, it can affect your urine flow and even intimacy. So I see my doctor for checkups and I take a supplement called beta prostate. Beta prostate is made with plant sterols that target the prostate. And it's really powerful stuff. How powerful? Well, you'd have to take over a hundred saw palmetto capsules to get the same healthy benefits found in one capsule of beta prostate. The choice is easy. Take better care of your body and try beta prostate risk free for 30 days. You've got nothing to lose. Just call 1 800 625 5535. That's 1 800 625 5535. With beta prostate, your satisfaction is guaranteed or you get your money back. Call now. 1-800-625-5535. That's 1-800-625-5535. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We have Brett Steiger, Kurt Southerly, Jerry Clark, Jim Mosley, Tim Beckley, Lauren Coleman, and David and myself, and we're sitting here talking about John Keel. By the way, my wife's getting a corneal transplant in another couple of weeks, so I am listening to these comments about cataract surgery because that's part of what they do. And I wish her well. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. Okay, let's move on here a little bit. No, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. No, I got There's a question I got to ask. Somebody okay, mentioned- well, David has a question. I might even oh. let him ask it. Go check ahead. Check it out. Check it out. Somebody mentioned about going to the stripper club with, with Keel. This yeah, is what I, I want to know. I heard the story myself. It's a dish. Mosley, Mosley and Keel were going off to the, see the strippers, and I, I was a young boy of 26, and I stayed in the hotel. <laughs> Good for remember. you, Lauren. Good for you. I do not remember ever going to a strip club with oh, I think people. he said it was me and, and me and John in the beginning. I don't, denial, maybe denial, denial. <laughs> well, no, no, no. So this is why I was getting to with the question of personal relationships. Where you know who who were the women or the men in John Keel's life? I'm just I'm curious about that. They were they were girlfriends. He always had girlfriends. Yeah, he had a, he had a girlfriend up in Woodstock, I think, for a long time. Wasn't she the writer? I, I don't know. We we used to try to pry that out of him. He get real closed mouth. So that was part of his life. He just didn't want to talk about. Uh, he did. He did have a gal from uh, South America too. I can't remember her uh, uh, name offhand, but uh, I can't remember the name of one. Governor I can't remember the name of the one in Woodstock either. <laughs> well, he never lived with a girl, though, did he? Yeah, that was my understanding. The, the gal in Woodstock, he would spend long periods of time with. Yeah, I mean, that, that was no, I mean, in, in his place in New York, he lived. No, alone. I don't think so. I don't think so. Up in Woodstock, I'm quite certain he was living with that woman. Yeah. Well, that was that was his alternate address. I mean, you can mail him at the post office box in New York, but if he was going to be in Woodstock and he, you know, wanted to stay in touch, he'd let you know. Just you know, wasn't she a writer, a playwright, or something, Kurt? I don't know. See, he would never be. Uh, there were a number of us that were involved in with Situ in, in the wake of Ivan's death, and when we'd have these little get-togethers over there to, to hash over what was going in a pursuit, that subject would inevitably come up, and he would just clam up. I must be the only one who ever met one of his girlfriends. Ah. And um, she was a woman. Uh, I can't remember her name. She was a, she was pretty, and she was very nice. She was not like Keel much at all. She was very sunny and warm and smart. She was a screenwriter, 
in Hollywood, and she accompanied John. Okay, there was the writer Mexico. part. Yeah, she accompanied him to Mexico, which is where I met him, and I spent several days in their company. And uh, Keel, as usual, was kind of erratic. He could be extremely charming, then he could just be horrendously abrasive. But she was really a nice person to the point that I actually found myself wondering, even back then, what is she doing with John Keel? But they were clearly <laughs> was, fond of each other, also- and I have heard since then that John often talked of her as the love of his life. Yeah. There was also uh, rumors of an affair with somebody who worked uh, for the Library of Congress. Uh, Lauren, uh, you, had in your, you had in your column the other day uh, the Warren Smith he was lying beside. Uh, did oh, yeah. he mention something about John never got over the death of, of one of his girlfriends? Yeah, something like that. And also, I think John at one point took on the dog of one of his girlfriends. That's not quite the same. No, 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 not quite the same. Girl in Woodstock. I mean, there's always xenophobia and homophobia, and and uh, working with these crews from Hollywood, Keel was so mysterious and so quiet about his relationships. Producers from Hollywood were wondering if he was, you know, gay or straight because it was so unclear. Absolutely not gay. I I know that, but I just mean it got to be very confusing for the outside world. Well, I I think he, it seems, discussing the subject with him, he felt that women sometimes could take advantage of you or had burnt him, I guess, in in, in the past. He seemed to have a... Oh, that never happened. All right, speaks from experience. Right, right. <laughs> Two divorces later, right. <laughs> well, now, what about Lauren? You mentioned that uh, John had a sister. What about the relationship with his close family? What was that like? From talking to them this week, it was it was sort of interesting. He had a father that was different from he has two half sisters and a half brother that had a different father than him and the difference in age the youngest one is 64 the eldest is 68 and he was 79 so there was a big difference in age but they tried to stay close and he was actually the closest to Cheryl his uh, his youngest half sister but what he would do is he'd give him the cell phone numbers and then he wouldn't pay his bill and the cell phone got turned off. So indeed the family hadn't, the sister hadn't talked to him since New Year's Day of this year. And it wasn't until she read my obituary on Monday that she knew he was dead. And then she started searching That's for the terrible. And found the That's yeah. terrible way to find out. Right. It was a terrible way to find out. And, and it was one of the nieces that actually contacted me and then put me in touch with everybody in the family. And they've, they're living in Florida instead of around Perry, New York now. So they're having to come up here. And she was just frantic. She was saying, you know, what is what am I supposed to do with 60 years of his stuff? And I've seen this so many times happen before where families swoop in and they load up the trash bins and throw it all away. So I was trying to, you know, calm them down and put them in touch with Doug Skinner and different things like that so that they could really now, go through this you know, calm the, way. The John- did John still have his apartment uh, up on the up in the 80s uh, here in uh, Manhattan? Yes, he I mean, did. I know the landlord had been trying to get him out for a long, long uh, time because it was a kind of a rent-stabilized apartment, and of course he wanted to get three thousand dollars a month or what Manhattan landlords would like to get for all their other little dinky. Well, I heard Spatso paid the last few months of rent just to keep it going. <laughs> the horrible thing was that. That John would sit at his desk. He couldn't move except with a cane, so he'd eat things, 
and throw them on the floor. And the place was was filthy. It was full of, you know, Chinese food containers and uh, tuna and yogurt containers and different things like that. He would never clean up. He'd throw all of the, I mean, and literally, here's the sad part of it, is he had diarrhea, so crews would have to come into his house because John was making a mess at the end, and he refused refused home care. He refused to be in Who is talking right now? Who? Lauren Coleman. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. And so it was just a sad picture at the end. I wanted to ask you here, guys, about that. I don't think I want to. I don't think I want you guys to do a tribute show to me if something happens. <laughs> Actually, we're already preparing it. By the way, we're preparing. I think I'll have to take I'm care gonna, of each I'm other. I'm going to leave that in my. I'm going to leave that in my will. No paracast. <laughs> we should mention it's your birthday, though, Tim. Okay, Tim, your birthday is when? It's the 13th of July, and I will my be God. eligible for Social Security. <laughs> That's oh also God. my wife's birthday, by the way. This is Lauren, and my yeah. birthday is the 12th, and I will also be eligible for Social Security. And guess what? My birthday is also the 12th, and I won't oh, be eligible goodness. for Social Security. <laughs> <laughs> what is this about July 12th? Three of our guests, how, July how 12th, and yeah, that, that's 12th and 13th. That's, that's, that's crazy. Supernatural Very interesting. High strangeness. High strangeness. Brad, when's your birthday? <laughs> February 19th, and I have been eligible for a long time. February 19th? <laughs> yeah, a couple months anyway. Yeah, my son's birthday is February 19th. That's oh, right. I, rem- I remember you mentioning right, that. Right, the synchronicity here. Jerry, when's your birthday? November 27th. Right. And you, Jim, is August 4th? Yeah, how did you know that? How did I know that? I've known you for how many years? Well, you never... Just he never sent him a card, even. Never sent him a card. <laughs> yeah, I don't he never I sent me a card. Why should I send him a card? Uh, I don't think I ever sent a card for many of you guys. <laughs> hey, Jim, my ex-wife, her birthday is August 4th, as well as one of my oldest friends. He's also August 4th. In you fact, know, this, did, you, did you hear about my ex-wife is, is Jerry Clark's birthday? This is getting very peculiar, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's getting a little, get, gets even better. The other friend who's got the birthday of August 4th is my buddy Bill Velacoop, who came on the show and talked about the full-body apparition the two of us saw in Florida a number of years ago. So, yeah, high strangeness is well entrenched in the whole topic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, all right, let, let, here's the thing. We, and again, you gentlemen all knew this man so well. If there was something you could say to him right now, I mean, in terms of you know, the fact that he did have a tremendous influence on a number of people involved in this topic, and you know, now that he's gone, if there's something you could say to him where you knew he couldn't come back to you with some sort of a snarky response, well, what would you say to him? Not, well, maybe that's uh, silly. I'll answer first. I'll, I'll say, John, I am a boil on the ass of your father. You were right all along. <laughs> Okay, well, well said, one, what about Jerry Clark? What would you say? Oh, I, you know, I don't tell other people how to live their lives. I have, I have a hard enough time living my own. Um, I just said, I think I said to Brad and Lauren privately, hearing of John's sad last months and years, that it's an object lesson in why you want to keep friends and family. Because one day you're going to get old and feeble, and you're going to really need them. Right. I think that, sadly, John neglected his friends and his family and suffered the consequences. Kurt? I think if I had a chance to ask him again, I asked him this once and he never answered me, which made me suspicious. But I wanted to know if he really did 
track that Yeti, the spore of that Yeti all over the uh, the Himalaya mountains, like you said, meet Jadu. has bugged me for years. That's bugged you for years, huh? Brad? Yes. Oh, I'm difficult with these things. I, I would agree with Jerry. As, as he said, we had kind of privately discussed this, that, and we discussed quite a bit. Jerry and I have known each other a long time, and, and we've uh, kind of supported each other on, on some difficult things, as, as I have with many, many others on the panel. And I consider the members of the, this panel all friends, all friends of mine, and I would like to think that they feel the same way about me and just how important the family and the friendship is. And I, I really feel sad that John turned his back on that or seemingly turned him. We shouldn't judge him. I agree, not judging anybody. But I wish that he wouldn't have cut himself off from so many of us because I think we would have been there for him. I think we would have tried to have helped him through some things. And I think there are many of us who feel somewhat hurt. Uh, I was mentioning this to Sherry last night, you know, kind of hurt the way he just kind of cut off communication. And I hope with you individuals, whom I all consider friends, I hope that never happens to us. I hope that we always stay in contact and that we're always there for each other as much as we can be. Amen. I agree, too. I, I think I really want to chime in on this theme that, I wish in, in many ways that John would have not put this wall around himself and, and know that the best kind of friends are ones that you can ask for help, you can ask for assistance, or you can even bitch to if you want to. And I would have welcomed any and all of that. You know, I had a few conversations with John, but usually with him complaining about somebody else, and I knew that as soon as we got off the phone, he was going to call somebody like Tim and complain about me, but that was... Uh, you, said he had, <laughs> you said he died. That was a big complaint about you. You spread the rumor that he was dead. I think that was... Well, I really believe that tributes are important, and I noticed that the you know, London Telegram totally stole my obituary and used it as their own, and that's fine. At least people are mentioning these people, but I agree with Jerry. You know, I, like Jerry and I and Brad and I and and the other of you folks, I, I hope that if when I get to be decrypted that I'm yeah. not so crusty that I can't, you know, come to you and say, you know, can you spare a dime, buddy? Or uh-huh. would you send somebody over to clean up after me? And I wish I wish John would have really uh, I'd, allowed I'd himself like to, to have friends. I'd like to interrupt and tell something I don't think any of you know, and I'm not making this up. In about 1983, I had previously owned a couple of apartment buildings in my more affluent days up in Guttenberg, New Jersey, and I sold the last building in 1983, and I kept an apartment for myself as part of the sales agreement. So I, by then, was living in Key West, but I'd go up once or twice a year for a week or two and stay in, in my apartment, and uh, the rest of the year it was vacant. And I knew even then that uh, Keel was having a hard time financially, and we did apparently still talk on the phone occasionally during that period. And I thought this was a nice thing to do. Since this apartment was vacant, uh, at least 11 out of 12 months, 
I offered to uh, John to let him stay there free, and I said, you'll have to share it with me a week or two, once or twice a year, but other than that, it's yours to live uh, by yourself without me, and I'm charging you nothing. And I thought that was a nice offer, and he didn't get angry exactly, but he sure didn't uh, thank me, and he said, I don't need a place to live. What I need is money. And I said, well, I don't have any money. And and that was the end of that offer and the end of that topic in that particular conversation. We have Brad Steiger, Kurt Southerly, Jerome Clark, Jim Mosley, Tim Beckley, and Lauren Coleman. We're back on the other side of the Paracast. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, Send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietnam. This is the third hour, and Tim Beckley has left us because he has a few things he has to take care of. Very gracious of him to join us for the first two hours of this episode. In tribute to John Keel, featuring Brad Steiger, Kurt Southerly, Jerry Clark, Jim Mosley, Lauren Coleman are still here. Still crazy after all these years. (laughs) Now, you know, maybe we could spend some of this remaining hour on what you guys actually think about the UFO mystery and how it's been influenced or not influenced by John Keel. And I think, Jerry, I'd like to hear your particular approach briefly. And we've had you on before, and we look forward to have you on again many times. But can you tell our listeners what you think about the UFO mystery today and how you think Keel did or did not shape it? I'm not really one of John Keel's admirers either as a fellow human being, although he had his points, and I did have some good times with him, along with the other things I had with him. And I don't really think that his books are all that important historically. I think that what Keel did was this, that he took a particular occult strain that had always been in the UFO subculture and ran with it. And he took some real material, this high strangest material, which is undoubtedly there, which had to be dealt with, and really very seriously misread it and brought a lot of people down with him and really distracted ufology and and anomalistics generally from 
a more sober and balanced consideration of a lot of questions that are real that deserve to be dealt with. But unfortunately, this stuff went through Keel's personality, which is more than anything else, profoundly anti-intellectual. Keel really wasn't a very good thinker. He, he was also careless. So what he wrote, even if you ignored his, his crackpot theories, his data weren't very trustworthy. And so, in a sense, John lost on both sides. Both data and theory were dubious. What Keel succeeded at was being a great character. And so any history of the Fortean movement, Keel will be a great character. He'll be like comparable to Tiffany Thayer who was not Ford's equal, but carried the flame forward for good or ill. Just for a few specifics, maybe one or two specifics where you felt he did sloppy research, he reached a conclusion, one or more conclusions that you feel were just not valid. Well, his thinking was really very primitive. Um, I was reading a 17th century book on demonology earlier this week, and um, I read uh, stuff. In fact, I wrote some of it down. I've got to quote it on the show here. That really sounds very much like John Keel. And uh, I don't think that medieval demonology is really a useful guide to thinking about the kinds of questions that we deal with when we confront high strangest phenomena. One problem that Keel had, just simply factually, was that he didn't recognize the, he was focused on this idea that ultra-terrestrials are hoaxing us, but he also seemed to forget that human beings are hoaxing us as well. So he fell for one hoax after another and incorporated the most blatant and transparent hoaxes into his theories and explanatory schemes. Mm. I think that Keel was basically, in all ways except being a great character, largely a disaster for ufology and anomalistics. Gary, I, I say that with all affection. Gary, I hope uh, I hope you think better than that of me, but I have a feeling I do, that you don't. Uh, but that's just my feeling. I do, Jim. I actually think that you've been a, a great chronicler of the the great you know the kind of social subculture of ufology. If you asked about a specific example of some shoddy research on the part of uh, John, I can give you a specific because uh, this is there were there were a number over the years that I that kind of. I noted, and this is one that has stayed with me because it happened here in Pennsylvania, not that far from where I'm at. Back in the early 70s, there was a report, uh, Associated Press, I think, or maybe it was UPI back then, picked up on a story about a, a bulldozer in Scranton, Pennsylvania, that disappeared overnight. It had been installed out in, in the whatever work environment it was parked in. I guess there was sand in the engine, so they simply couldn't run it. Workman showed up the next day, the bulldozer was gone, period. Keel reported on that in, I think, that in, in one of his early magazine pieces, and then he repeated it again in Disneyland of the Gods. And he had the dates all screwed up. It, it, was, it was just atrocious. And I remember I, I wrote to him about it and never responded. But it's one of the things that I took note of because at the time I was getting really kind of getting started in the newspaper business as a, as a part-time writer when I first heard about this episode and saw Keel's writing on it. And then later, as a full-blown newspaper man, of course, I was taught to be meticulous, be careful. When I wrote my two books, I made damn sure that I went through everything a number of times to try to get it as accurate as I could and would include footnotes. So that kind of thing bugs me, and Keel used to do that a lot. And I hate to say it, but that was he, he was very sloppy. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's move to another 
commentary about that, Lauren? Yeah, I think there's there's two ways to look at Keel as far as my appreciation or unappreciation of him. On the one hand, I think that if we move back from this and look at it from a more historical or general public point of view, that Keel really popularized UFOs and popularized Fordian phenomena in a way that Charles Fort and in, in another area, Jacques Vallée and a lot of us that are speaking today have popularized it. But Keel was really the first one in men's magazines. I remember some of the places I found his articles were in barber shops and were on the newsstand. And so he would very much touch the people in a way. And I think in many ways that really continued on with how he made the jump to Hollywood with the Moss Man's Prophecies movie, which all of us, despite us disagreeing with his theories or his insights or his research, we very much appreciate that he opened the door so that more Hollywood people might say, hey, I'd like your book and to give you some money, which is always appreciated by the writers like myself. <laughs> that was one part of it. But on an individual basis, when I went to Point Pleasant recently in 2001 and 2002 and talked to people like Linda Scarberry, the, one of the first witnesses, she said that after she talked to John Keel, and he really brainwashed her into thinking that she was dealing with demons, she went back into her house and put crosses on every wall. <laughs> she had mental break, uh, mental health breakdown. She ended up in a mental hospital. She ended up in divorce. And so there's a part of John Keel's demonology that really did poison the waters individually. Sounds like he was the demon in this case. Well, I mean, I, I'm not going to say that about John, but he certainly, his personality was so powerful in him thinking that demons were really there, that those people that weren't, who were more vulnerable, were eyewitnesses or, you know, had these encounters, sometimes would take on his belief system and, and really go the wrong direction with it. And I find that... Uh, the, the cautionary tale in John Keel's sort of approach with this demonology or whatever theory he wanted to come up with. It went to the dark side too quickly uh, with many people. Was that part of this sense of humor, this dark sense of humor? Was he just no, no. pulling this on here? Totally, no, he was totally serious. When I interviewed him for my Mothman book, he just reinforced what Jerry had said in a lot of his writings, that he did not like to be called a ufologist. He was a demonologist, and it wasn't in terms of a, a kind of classic occultist. He really felt that there were demons all around, and, and those demons, I think, were inside of John, but they, uh, they mm. got internalized very quickly in his writings. I remember one time uh, I had a phone conversation with Keel, I don't know how many years ago, and he was knocking somebody for some reason, I can't remember the background of it, and he went on to say how terrible uh, the uh, UFO field is, and I uh, guess I knew what would happen, but I said, well, John, you're in the UFO field, and he blew a gasket. And he said, I am not, and I have never been in the UFO field. I'm a 14. And uh, he really uh, got uh, seriously upset, which I must admit I kind of thought he would, but uh, that's what happened on that conversation. Were you maybe trying to make him get upset? 
Well, I I thought he'd get upset, but not that upset. Uh, it's unbelievable how touchy he was. One time I witnessed, this isn't a bizarre instant lot that you're saying, Jim. Uh, one time I was in Keel's company, and we got to, we were talking about cryptozoology generally, and he stated as a, as a fact, uncontested fact, that Loch Ness monsters are demons. And wow. when I said that I didn't that was the case, and I was very polite in saying that, he blew a gasket. His face got red. His, he began waving his fists. He began screaming. And I happened to be in the company of a of a the Reverend Ted Peters at the time, who was a well-known uh, Lutheran theologian and also had long ago wrote a book about UFOs and, and Christianity. And what went on and on. I didn't think he was ever going to stop, and it was really scary. And finally, after about 10 or 15 minutes, he storms off, and, and Reverend Peters turned to me. I'll never forget what he said. He said, Jerry, you have a very sick friend. <laughs> well, now, now, in all fairness, I just want to read something from uh, Jerry Clark's amazing UFO encyclopedia. In the entry on Keel, and this is where I get to I get to, to do my little John Keel shtick here. He says, and I quote: He referred to ufologists as nobodies, cultists, hobbyists, creators of a quote an imaginary self-image with the necessary lies to maintain it. Many, according to Keel, suffer from serious psychiatric problems. Present company ex certainly accepted. I'd say he was right on the mark with those comments. I mean, I, I think for oh, I, I don't think so. I don't, don't think so. so. No, if it's true, it, it, it certainly applied to him equally, if not more so. I just, one thing that, that has struck me about ufologists is really their ordinariness. It's like a bunch of stamp collectors or collectors of jazz records or something. It's just, they're really pretty ordinary people. But let me tell you a little story here. All right. Back in 1992, Peter Brooksmith, who's a British writer and skeptic and ufologist, etc., called me up and he said, you know, Jerry, um, John Keel is here in England and to give some lectures and he's been going around telling people that you have been in and out of mental institutions all of your life. <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> and uh, so I ended up, I, not long afterwards, I wrote John a letter and I said, I am informed that you're saying that I am seriously mentally ill and have been in and out of hospitalization all of my life. And what is this about? So he writes me back, and he doesn't deny that he says this. In fact, he affirms that he has said this. And then he tells me that I am seriously mentally ill, that I really should be under constant psychiatric care with medication, that I'm unable to care for myself. And since I have not been in and out of mental institutions all of my adult life, needless to say, and I have a public record to prove it, how could I have written all these books? But the Keel's implication was that I was so crazy that I haven't noticed that I've been in and out of mental institutions. <laughs> now, I have heard Keel say this Sarah, about you a lot to of be, You were to be his successor. <laughs> yes, I was. <laughs> and... When Keel says that you, which which was he referring to? <laughs> people, when he says that other people are mental cases, 
I think that this guy is probably looking at his own image in the mirror. And yeah. I have lived my whole life in UFO subculture. It's just about everybody here has. And I also have a lot of other interests and operate in other social subcultures as well. You know, like I have a deep interest in folk music, so I know a lot of folk music people. And I talked one time with a woman who, who raises sled dogs in northern Minnesota. And I said, well, what's that like? And she says, oh, the people in the sled dog culture, they're, they're pretty much like ufologists. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a classic. That's a classic. Is your IRS tax problem ruining your life? Hi, I'm Ronnie Deutsch. Don't be another IRS victim, and please don't give up hope. Call me today and let's do something about it. If you have tax problems, call Ronnie Lynn Deutsch, a professional tax corporation, at 800-515-4541. That's 800-515-4541 for your free and confidential tax analysis. That's 800-515-4541 for your free tax guide. Call Ronnie Deutsch's law firm and speak with them today. Not available in New York. The you know neighbor is one of the hardest jobs in organizing this show and our websites was finding the right host to get everything online. We've used a number of these companies and there are lots of good ones to choose from, but the very best is one and one internet. One and one internet is part of United Online. It's a large European telecom company that's been in business since the 1980s. So you can bet they know what they're doing and there are millions of individuals and companies out there who depend on one and one internet to get online and stay online. Right now, One in One Internet is having a big special. From the cheapest email hosting package to the large dual quad-core server that we're using, you can bet that you'll get a full package of the services you really need at a price that's far lower than you might expect. From registering a domain to hosting a full-fledged business site, use the same host we do, One and One Internet. To get the latest special deals, point your browser to theparacast.com slash host. That's theparacast.com slash host for the best value in hosting your personal or business sites. Hi, this is Nick Pope. You're listening to The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. This is a classic episode with Brad Steiger, Kurt Southerly, Jerome Clark, Jim Mosley, Lauren Coleman, Tim Beckley joined us earlier. Brad, you have to contribute to this little collection of anecdotes. Yeah, it, it's it's very uh, strange for me in 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 a sense. Jerry has shared some of this with shot me at the time since. We've kept him pretty close touch, and I, and I can vouch he hasn't been in mental institutions. <laughs> I appreciate your support, Brad. <laughs> and I don't know. This is very—it's very strange for me in one sense. I try not to label myself. I know other people do, because it's just human nature to categorize people. But um, the editor of Fortean magazine, in a review of a book of mine recently said that I had done as much for Fortiana as Keel had done for ufology. Now if Keel didn't consider himself a ufologist, he was he was probably he probably was wasn't pleased by that and, and I certainly have taken a Fortian nature or approach to many things. But I have written twenty two books 
and coupled with my wife on, on UFOs because I find the phenomena fascinating, but I basically find it's the people phenomena. I, I've been attracted to the, and, and I suppose what John Keel did for me is get me interested in the contactees, the people who claim they see UFOs. And that's basically what I focused on. I find all these strange phenomena fascinating. But guys, as we know, this has been going on for centuries. And we just call it what we think it is according to our technology. I consider myself a, a paranormalist. My strangers from the skies, 66, came out perfect timing. And when I wrote that book, I just thought UFOs were something interesting. And I, and I did not, none of us like to use the word believe. <laughs> but I did not truly accept UFOs as being anything than misinterpretation. The response I got at that to that book led to me my doing these specials, which Jerry, I know you contributed to, to a couple of them, and 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 other good friends, and in their articles and so forth. And that was kind of fun, and I got interested into it. But what really intrigued me then, when I went on the road, and I went from New York City to Chicago to Vancouver, Washington, and I found all these people talking about entities that had just visited them in spaceships. And now this is before Internet. This is before big TV. This is before any great interest. And they're, and they're all speaking the same thing, and they're saying the same thing, and they they've told us to correct our planet and to be kind to one another and I thought where have I heard this before so I became interested in what do we see happening here and a little a little Jungian here a little Jungian and I admit about symbol in the sky becoming a mantra in the sky that's activating certain people this is the time of confusion this is the time of desperation but there is something maybe we're hardwired to see these kinds of things in the skies and interpret them in certain ways primarily spiritual primarily religious because I think when it comes right down to it, even the, the people I speak to they are still be lying, they're still betraying a, a religious or belief structure that is somehow fastened to this phenomena. So my interest in UFOs has been that. What, who are the people who are seeing them? Why are we seeing them? What is really happening here? And then, Jerry, I agree with you. What we are reporting is happening probably isn't what's really happening. Well, and as I was saying to somebody the other day, consider the size of the universe and then consider the size of our brains. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's correct. That's correct, but, but but at any rate, what I, what I'm saying is it's, it's that aspect that fascinates me, and what I saw then and what I discovered to my satisfaction is that what we're seeing here is just update of spiritualism, update of belief in the paranormal, update of the same thing I heard mediums in spiritualist camps say. And what is this phenomena and what is really going on? Will we really go on? And that's what I'm trying in, you know, from my perspective to investigate is, and that's where probably Keel gave me the courage to do that.
because, you know, we all desperately, I, mean, I really wanted the day the earth stood still to be true. <laughs> I really did want Klaatu to come down and tell us to shape up. And then I realized that that's probably been the most influential movie for contactees or Amen. UFOs, because Amen. that's what all the contactees are saying, shape up or, or annihilation. There are so many factors involved there, sociological, psychological. Logical, uh, cultural, and, phenomenological, and phenomenological, definitely. I mean, that's I don't my think, particular interest. I don't think it's an either-or thing. I think that there's probably a bunch of either's and a bunch of exactly. or's. Maybe a number of exactly. things going on at one time. That's what you know. I think you're exactly right on that. On my website, when when someone asked me, and it might have been uh, Beckley's paper, uh, one of magazines once asked me for my one theory of UFOs, I sent 17, and I have this on my website, 17 theories of UFOs is what I have. I don't have one theory of UFOs. Well, it comes down to trying to, and, and certainly what Keel seemed to be trying to do, certainly earlier on, was trying to figure out what were the tenuous connections between these different phenomena. And understanding that, and I think that this is something that we've run up against, for example, in the current study of these topics, you have, for example, a disclosure movement, people who are certain that the government is sitting on specific information and they're certain they have that specific information, when in fact there's really nothing to indicate that that's true, <laughs> where a lot of people who would try to understand just the facet that is the UFO stuff, they sort of cling to things like the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And well, the extraterrestrial hypothesis is defensible for a certain for category certain of reports. Absolutely. It's not That's defensible for everything, and we may be, we may be making category errors by confusing everything. Them. Jerry, I think we have to separate them, don't we? Yeah. We're not really yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When we're talking about the UFO mystery, at least for me, I'm not talking about is there life in outer space. Right. I'm not talking exactly. about the possibility of extraterrestrial life. I separate the two. Absolutely. Right, let, me, let me jump in here for a second and get on the three things. I agree. I, I think I'm somewhere between the two of you in the sense that I believe we're dealing possibly with a phenomenological or spiritual uh, spiritual type of phenomenon. But at the same time, I think there there is something maybe to the ET hypothesis. And with that in mind, in, in one of the books, uh, a number of years ago, it was back in 1991, there was an object that was picked up by a number of, of observatories. I think it began in Kitt Peak, Arizona, and the last observation was from a, a big observatory in Spain. They watched this object coming in, uh, making a close approach of the Earth. They thought at first that it was an asteroid, but it didn't behave like an asteroid. It behaved for all the world like an artificial body. It made a close approach to the to the Earth, uh, actually fairly close to the atmosphere, as I understand it, and moved back out into deep space. And they tracked it as long as they could. They identified it. They gave it a categorization number. But it's, it's never reappeared, and they really don't seem to believe that that thing was an asteroid. They said it, it, it had the, I'm trying to think of the term they used for it, the, the, the luminescence of an artificial satellite. And that, when I, when I read a report like that, and it kind of disappeared after the initial published account, there was really not much said about it at all after that, if anything. That, to me, suggests that maybe, yeah, maybe there's somebody out there, maybe they're keeping an eye on us, maybe that was a probe. 
that came in. Any of us deny that, that there's a possibility. But that doesn't explain all of the other things that are going on, the things that in the high strangeness category. And so you you, you have to, and, you know, you really have to look at a lot of different possibilities. I don't think there's any reason to not think that the UFO of the radar visual, for example, there's no reason not to think that's somebody else's technology. But when you get into the into the wilder stuff, the 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 stuff that's more purely experiential, the ETH doesn't work for that. But what if the UFO of the radar visual and the kind of stuff that Keel was cataloging, what if those are entirely different things? Well, and I think that's exactly right. There's a, a really well, a really fascinating UFO phot- photographic evidence case from the Skylab 3 mission where uh, three of the Skylab members shot a, a photo of this thing. Actually, I, should, I think they shot three photos and were able to figure out also based on uh, some specific issues about the orbit around the Earth what this, and the distance from the craft from, the, from Skylab, what the size of this thing was. It was an 800-foot-long object. There are photos of this, clear photos of this thing. Now, obviously, you've got something like that, this huge object out in space. I'd be willing to bet that's, that's non-human tech of some sort. You know, you, you separate that from just in the last week or so, there's been some video evidence out of Mexico of this crazy spinning object in the air spitting out these little white balls that fly around it and with some real intelligence and purpose. And these, it's, that's another one where it's not CG. You know, it's, it's, it's technically a UFO. Yes, it's an unidentified flying object, but I commented on our forums that to me, this thing looked like some kind of a life form, and it, and it behaved like one, and it moved like one. So clearly, I think that if you're talking about this topic in a serious way, you have to sort of take away the polarization of the tendency to want to take and take the term UFO and marry it to the term extraterrestrial. I think that anybody looking at this stuff seriously understands that to do that is to vastly oversimplify what's potentially going on. Well, yes, but it's also an oversimplification to take their UFO and and attach it to all kinds of other bizarre and weird phenomena. I mean, I think that it's more useful to talk about a core phenomenon, which is the phenomenon of the radar visual, the CE2, and so on, where you can... You can document scientifically that an extraordinarily anomalous event took place. And then you can take all the kind of purely experiential weirdness, which doesn't seem to happen on an event level, but certainly happens on an experience level, and approach them as phenomena that are only superficially similar. I find the ETH a perfectly reasonable interpretation of the core phenomenon. In fact, I can't even imagine any other interpretation. And developments in astronomy over the last decades have been very, very good for the ETH. As we're finding that life appears to be ubiquitous in the universe, that may mean that there are tens of millions of intelligent civilizations in our galaxy alone, if that's true. It would be stranger if we didn't have evidence of them. It would be stranger that they weren't visiting. Mm-hmm. Uh, See, I, I would I agree with that, Jerry, if you say that goes all the way back to before we stood upright. Well, that yeah. this has been interacting with us long before we even developed as a species. What's to say that there hasn't been some high-tech intelligence keeping an eye on us since way back when? Well, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I hate to say this, but men start to realize at about 40 
that we're not so young anymore. I think it hits us when we start hearing about the importance of prostate health. Well, your prostate is right down there near your bladder. So if it's unhealthy, it can affect your urine flow and even intimacy. So I see my doctor for checkups and I take a supplement called beta prostate. Beta prostate is made with plant sterols that target the prostate. That's really powerful stuff. How powerful? Well, you'd have to take over a hundred saw palmetto capsules to get the same healthy benefits found in one capsule of beta prostate. The choice is easy. Take better care of your body and try beta prostate risk free for 30 days. You've got nothing to lose. Just call 1-800-625-5535. That's 1-800-625-5535. With beta prostate, your satisfaction is guaranteed or you get your money back. Call now. 1-800-625-5535. That's 1-800-625-5535. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Lauren Coleman, Jim Mosley, Jerome Clark, Kurt Southerly, Brad Steiger, and I guess the best tribute to John Keel is that he made us think, and maybe his work is filled with flaws, but we started thinking and he expanded our horizons quite a bit, as I can see. Jim, you have kind of, what, a three and a half, four 4D kind of interpretation of UFOs? Oh, I've gone through, as Jerry can, uh, <laughs> I think Jerry mentioned in something that he wrote quite a while ago that I've gone through every one of the uh, possible theories about UFOs at one time or another and been enthusiastic about each of them at the time that I believed it. And uh, that is a valid criticism. In, in, in recent years, I am more and more completely convinced that something exceedingly strange is going on. Unlike some people, not us on this panel, but others who stick with saucers for a while and see how little of the evidence really uh, holds up under scrutiny and how much nonsense there is, uh, they give up and they quit. Uh, That's happened to uh, many, many enthusiasts, and I am at the opposite end of that spectrum. I am more enthused than ever, but I must tell all of you, I am more confused than ever. I don't know what it is. I don't think just because there's life throughout the universe that that means that some of it is visiting us here now. I think there are many reasons that we're not even that important, but you can argue endlessly about that. All I'm trying to say is that something is going on and we don't understand it at all. We can rave and rant, but none of us understand it. We're theorizing, and theorizing we're guessing, and we're deluding ourselves if we think that we have answers. I think there are answers. I think quantum physics and the human brain are two areas that we should look more into, but uh, I don't think I'm going to live long enough 
to see any solution here, and I do hope uh, some of you do live long enough. I don't expect that I will. End of statement. Uh, kind of fatalistic. Lauren? Well, I think that uh, ever since Jerry Clark and I were introduced by John Keel, that's been one of my important influences, but then what quickly happened is we wrote a book and everybody thought we were joined at the hip, and so I've been very careful not to leave the UFOs to Jerry. As far as Keel's influence on cryptozoology, I think it's been interestingly intriguing, I guess, that he really hasn't had that much influence for real cryptozoology. His theories, which have been too heady, I think, for most cryptozoologists, really went far away from where he was. He said to me and to other people, of course, that his real mentor was Ivan T. Sanderson. And Ivan T. Sanderson very much felt that tangible intangibles were the way to go. And so when Keel started going off into the Netherland, he really split from many of the ways that I saw cryptozoology, which is to, to of course, take into account the eyewitnesses, to really look at it from the psychiatry and the sociology of the eyewitness as your primary source, but then to also look for are, are there footprints, are there fecal material, are there hair samples, and Keel just really wasn't interested in that. And I really, I think since 66, he really changed. And in 67, he really wasn't interested in the bird, which is what he called Mothman. He was more interested in whether or not the contactees and, the, uh, you know, those psychics, what they were telling him about the, the sinister side of it. So I, I don't think that... Uh, Keel's influence will really be that long-term, even to me, uh, as far as cryptozoology. But as a man and as a, a friend, I will miss him, certainly. Well, Keel was a theorist, and as some of you have noticed uh, or uh, mentioned uh, on this uh, broadcast, he, he didn't really care about details very much and uh, didn't go to a lot of trouble to get them uh, correctly. And uh, I also think you've all been saying that he was pretty much of a negative theorist and uh, a negative sort of personality when he was serious, and you weren't always sure when he was serious. I mean, I hate to say it, he was a uh, negative and confusing sort of person, and unfortunately more so toward the end. I mean, is anyone disagreeing with me? about that? Well, if we would disagree with you, then we'd be negative and we couldn't do that. Yes, well, that's exactly, <laughs> that is exactly the right answer. Thank you. Okay. Now solve well, the think, world's problems. I think <laughs> someone said it uh, a while ago, and Gene, it was probably you. Uh, one of the things that he did was to make us think, and that yeah. certainly in itself is a legacy. Amen. That's fair enough. Now, let's look in the waning moments here about UFO research today, 2009, Brad, have we gone anywhere at all, or is it all the same thing as we saw back in the 50s and 60s? Well, <laughs> I wrote an article for Fade a couple of years ago saying, you know, it's... And he's still waiting for the check. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I didn't get a check. I didn't get a check. <laughs> but basically saying, you know, that's been 40 years or whatever, and we're still arguing about the same things. And that's uh, right. I, I remember Jim, uh, Jim Mosley called me and said, uh, 
that, that he agreed with the article. Because, Jim, uh, you, you've been there certainly uh, cataloging and uh, detailing it from the very beginning. And, and just as you said, there's been this theory and that theory. I guess for ufology right now, I follow it closely, but I... I kind of follow it more through uh, through Jerry Clark right now. <laughs> I've kind of bequeathed, uh, other than my fascination with the subject, I, I've I've uh, uh, I've kind of bequeathed ufology to Jerry, and 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 I've gone on back to uh, paranormalism. Jerry, it's in your ballpark now. It's been bequeathed to you. Well, I I guess I'm going to have to hand it off to some passerby. <laughs> <laughs> I understand they can sell ufology on eBay, special offer. <laughs> Last year I got this big award, I state immodestly, from the Society for Scientific Exploration. And I had to give a lecture in return for my check and my, my, my plaque. And in the speech, one of the first things I said was that I, in, in, in my twilight years, I find it easier to find myself as an anomalist as opposed to a ufologist simply because my interest really now, I am, have been satisfied in my own mind and I'm not trying to tell every, the rest of you what to think, but in my own mind I am settled that the core UFO phenomenon is represents an entirely predictable extraterrestrial visitation that we would get from a densely populated galaxy. That I'm settled with and doesn't even particularly interest me, relatively speaking. What does interest me is the larger phenomenological context of a high strangeness experience phenomena as opposed to event phenomena. And this involves everything from the weirdest end of the UFO spectrum to fairy lore to religious visions and so on. That really that, interests that, me. Then I guess we're, we're back doing the same thing again, Jerry. <laughs> Well, it's just that I have learned how to think about these things. I think that when I started out, I was a naive kid. I think that yeah, that in yeah, my we, 60s, we all were. Yeah, I think I've I've done an enormous amount of reading. I have many interests, and I think that I'm simply better able to think. I'm certainly more intellectually sophisticated, and so I'm really more interested in the in the kinds of bizarre experiential phenomena and their significance. And one thing that I find very frustrating about Kiel is that Kiel, yes, understood that these things are going on and they deserve attention. It was just that Kiel had such a limited imagination and he came to it with an anti-intellectual point of view and also a real paranoia that I think really crippled his thinking and thus the thinking of a lot of people when they confront this stuff. So when it said that Keel made us think, I don't agree. I think that he made us unthink. I think that, <laughs> that he really misled us. A little bit later in the show, by the way, we are going to present an eight or nine minute speech from John Keel. So listeners who didn't hear him in action will have their opportunity. Now, Lauren Coleman, having, I guess, bequeathed UFO research to Jerome Clark, any further observations about it? Yeah, I actually do have something to say. <laughs> Surprisingly, no. I think the one thing that I wanted to also mention is that John Keel really gave a whole legacy about the name game. And I've been kind of putting my toe in what this new field called synchromistics. And there's a whole bunch of young people, and I'm saying people that are 17 to 22 that have their own blog sites out there. It's intriguing how in the recent 
month, they have really got behind this alien disclosure movement. They've been looking at movies that are coming out saying, you know, why isn't Hollywood, why isn't the press talking about this more? There's going to be an alien. And, you know, it's not so much they think that Obama is going to open the secret files kind of in a NICAP sort of way. They really feel that something big is going to happen any day, and they're seeing the signs all around. And it sounds so familiar to me. We all are old men on this panel here, and we all have been down this road before. And it's so disheartening to me to hear once again these young whippersnappers coming along with so much hope that the full truth is going to come any day now. And, uh, you know, Keel in many ways really started sort of the predictive trends and uh, the notions that he could really see things because these psychics were telling him different things. You know, the Mossman Prophecies, of course, is the, the banshee book of the year as far as that goes. And I think that's, that legacy is, lives on from Keel. And I've even called in one of my chapters, I call it the spawn of Keel. You have young kids nowadays, mostly males, that really are hopeful that any time now the aliens will be revealed. Mm. You know, the Area 51 mm-hmm. doors will be open or the Wright-Patterson bodies will be shown. And it's, right. it's very much a real true belief today. I'll tell you what, guys, in our waning moments, I want each of you to tell us what, if anything, you're working on. UFOs, paranormal research, music, whatever. Brad, what do you have coming out? Well, right now we've... With my wife, Sherry, I have the Real Miracles, Divine Interventions, and Feats of Incredible Survival, which is just incredible things where someone shoots a bullet at a victim and it bounces off its teeth, and just incredible stories. People who fell out of airplanes and landed in their seat and then walked for three days through a forest, rainforest. I mean, just all incredible stories of incredible adventures, of incredible people who were just ordinary people and suddenly found themselves uh, in a moment where they had to rely upon either what's within or what's without. You know, Brad, we'll have you and Sherry on the show in the near future to talk about that, okay? Thank you. I'm an incredible author, I must say. Brad is the anti-keel, and I mean that as the (laughs) highest compliment. Yes. Since you took the floor, Jerry, what are you working on? I'm just finishing up a book on the the subject that interests me most these days in terms of anomalistics, and that's the kind of liminal zone between imagination and experience. When I'm finished with that, I'm going to return and write another book on my major interest these days, which is 19th century Fortiana. I've got an enormous amount of materials never Mm. appeared before, book covers before. Kurt, what are you working on? Uh, you mean along with uh, my regular job and constantly working around the house? <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> I have uh, two books that uh, I've been struggling with for some time. I, my regular job, which some of you probably know, is with the uh, with the Air Force Recruiting Squadron. It's been taking up more and more of my free time over the last few years. And uh, then I bought this place three years ago, and I've been teaching myself masonry and uh, getting my hands dirty in that, literally. In the free time that I have, I've been working on two books side by side. One is a compilation of pieces, uh, a compilation of, of uh, articles and interviews, 
and uh, some fragments I'm putting into into a, a kind of a whole package. This has to do with natural history, people that live in uh, uh, in rural environments, uh, how they've interacted with with the wildlife and with the landscape around them over the years. And along with that, I'm I'm doing a uh, trying to write a novel, uh, which is I, I guess you would classify it as high fantasy, although it's really there's not a lot of sorcery per se in it. It's more of a uh, kind of a military adventure set in a uh, in in a different world, you know, with some medievalism thrown in. And over the years, I've I've become sort of a swordsman. I'm one of the few people that can actually wield a blade, a number of different blades, with either left or right hand. I'm going to stay away from you, Kurt. I'm I'm Uh, glad we've always been friendly toward one another, Kurt. Yes, yes. Well, it's, it's, believe me, it's a great release. I mean, you you put a blade in your hand and you put a a stereo headset on and some good music and you go through your sword forms for a couple of hours and there's not a lot of antagonism left by the time you're finished. (laughs) It's a great release. Lauren? What are you working on? Well, I've been struggling with some books lately, and I've got about four. But the one that I've been uh, really struggling with in the last year is one called Mothman Evil Incarnate, which is a major revision of my Mothman book. And I think now I can finally finish it because, you know, I'll kind of end it with the obituary or the life celebration of Keel's death. But, uh, you know, I'm always doing a lot of talks, and actually also I'm consulting this year with uh, Monster Quest, so that's been a lot of fun. I have links to those of you who have websites that I know about. Jim Mosley, of course, does not use the Internet except those who print out copies of what's going on there. He does not have a personal computer. He doesn't have caller ID, but he can tell us how we can get a copy of Saucer Smear. Ah, he's like you'd never ask, yes. I still grind out Saucer Smear every month or so, and uh, under different titles over the years, I've been uh, publishing uh, UFO-oriented magazines uh, for about 55 years, which is quite a while. And I'm still at it and will continue to be at it as long as I'm able to do so. The address to uh, reach me by snail mail is P.O. Box 1709, Key West, Florida, 33041. Say that one more time. I'll say it as many times as I want. No, I'll say it one more time. Time, uh, P.O. Box 1709. Key West, two words, Key West, Florida, 33041. And if you want to phone me, I am really hard to reach. I have two phones out here, and they're right next to me, both of them. And you can call any time. Very few people do, but if they want to go to that ancient uh, method of uh, communication, uh, I'm glad to hear from anybody. And his number's in the book. It's not unlisted. Oh, not unlisted at all, no. I was just reading the current newsletter last night, Jim, and I realized... I haven't sent my love offering yet, so... Well, it it hasn't been called for until toward the end of the year. Everybody uh, gets notices about uh, November. Mm, That's how he supports himself. Listen, guys, we're going to hear the words of John Keel as expressed by John Keel in a moment. We want to thank Tim Beckley, who joined us earlier, Brad Steiger, Kurt Southerly, Jerry Clark, Jim Mosley, Lauren Coleman, for joining us on the PowerCast. Thanks, gentlemen. Really wonderful. What a wonderful time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. 
Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer to the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net, and we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications, and you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos, and it's all for free. Or drop us a line, Mr. UFO at webtv.net. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You know, I love YouTube, Gene, because you can find the most amazing things on there. You really can. You go and type John Keel's name, and there's a clip from 1992 from the Fort Fest. John Keel is responding to questions, and this is a clip that ties a few different things together, and I, uh, I really enjoyed it. I thought our audience would enjoy it as well. These predictions are not based on psychic ability. They're based on projections. You take what, what's happening now and project it into the future. And there are a few people who have been doing this. There are a lot of people who talk about cycles and so on, but it goes beyond cycles. And the way to understand it is you have to understand history. There are, every few years, there's what we call a pivotal year, when everything comes together at once in one year. And we can see, looking backwards, we can see these pivotal years throughout history. And looking forward, we can see the ones that are coming up. Around 500 B.C., 2,500 years ago, in, the, in Persia, there was a man named Zoroaster. Zoroaster was talking to entities, talking to an entity called Mazda. Then he came up with the concept of devils and angels, which, of course, became the foundation for the uh, Jewish and uh, Christian religions. In that century, philosophy and religion all over the world changed. And yet, the people in Persia had no idea that it was happening in China. People in China had no idea it was happening in India. And it was a new age. So we can say that that, that, that century was a pivotal century. But the year that most people know about was 1848, which was a major pivotal year for the entire world on every level. In England, there was a fellow named Karl Marx who came up with an idea that he called communism. There were more than 50 revolutions around the world that year. There were scores of assassinations, political assassinations. In the United States, here in New York State, a couple of young girls started hearing rappings in their walls of their little house that they lived in. And they were the Fox sisters. And they founded spiritualism that year. And that was a major event in the 19th century. Spiritualism gripped the entire country for many years. There, there were many other pivotal years, and you've lived through a couple of them. 
Now, 1968 was a major pivotal year, and there again the books are still appearing on it. We not only had political assassinations in 1968, but there was a revolution in France. There were all kinds of upheavals all over the world. Uh, the war in Vietnam, of course, got mired down. We were also on the threshold of space, about to go into space. The following year, we did. Also, in 1968, we had a major flying saucer uh, wave. Uh, there are literally hundreds of books on that flying saucer wave. Uh, people in every state wrote books about just the sightings in their own state. One of the uh, next big pivotal years that you all lived through was 1973. Now, 1973 was a very remarkable year, and most of the people who lived through it don't even realize it now. It started out, we had a vice president named Spiro Agnew, and it turned out he was taking bribes, so they threw him out of office. They were almost put him in jail. Of course, Watergate happened the year before, and the Watergate thing started building up. But we also were in very serious economic trouble. In the 1960s, the Vietnamese War was costing us a billion dollars a day. And in order to pay for it, we started printing money. Printing money where there was no gold to back it up. And then, because I'm this tremendous profit, that year I bought a car that got 35 miles to a gallon. Bought a Carmen Ghia, which was made by Volkswagen. Everybody else had a car that got eight miles to the gallon. That fall, of course, we had our phony oil shortage. You all remember that, the long lines and all. Now, in France, after that oil shortage was over, France held a trial of all of their leading oil men. They put them all in jail. Now, we should have done that here. Now, in October of 1973, we suddenly had a, a UFO wave, a major UFO wave. And for two weeks, the newspapers didn't carry anything else but UFO news. It was all very exciting. To the UFO buffs and the 14s who were following UFO stuff. And then the Arabs attacked Israel. Now, the newspapers and the news media here in the United States who were all zeroed in on UFOs, and in fact, NBC had teams running around the country interviewing UFO witnesses. Suddenly the war started and they had to divert all of their media to the war. And the news on the UFOs stopped cold. But the UFO sightings continued. Now, most of the, most of the UFO buffs still erroneously say that 1973 was the big year in the 70s for UFOs. It wasn't. 1975 was the big year. And the, the UFO sightings and other uh, 14 things continued to build up in 74. And then in 75, we had them everywhere. We had everything. We had Bigfoot sightings. We had sea serpent sightings. We had all kinds of UFO sightings and landings and abductions. And it was all in 1975, not in 73. By 1975, when we had all of these 14 things going on, a lot of people had dropped out of the uh, 
the UFO scene in the 14th scene. In the 60s, with a big wave of the 1960s, literally millions of people took an interest in UFOs. And we had networks all over the country and all over the world watching the UFO sightings and uh, other events. But by 1975, there were only a handful of people who were still interested and still watching. So the news media was also rather disinterested. And it's only in recent years that all this stuff has trickled in, and you can see how 1975 was the big year for those kinds of things. Now, this may not seem very 14 to some of you, but everything is interrelated. And the more we study history and more the, the more we study current events, we see that all of these things are linked together in strange ways. That the UFOs, as, as most of you know who read my books, I don't think they're extraterrestrial at all. I think they're definitely tied to the human race and that they react to things that are happening to the human race. I don't think they're vehicles. I think sometimes people see what appears to be vehicles, but they're really hallucinatory. And uh, no matter how reliable the witness is, what, what they see can be questioned. Uh, the same is true in many of our uh, Bigfoot cases and uh, strange monster cases, that the people see some image that's planted in their mind and the creature itself probably doesn't exist at all, at least not as, as the creature that's seen. When I was in India, I was impressed at the number of people who were seeing the Indian gods, uh, multi-armed gods, gods and all. Whatever your belief is, your, your, these manifestations are going to um, assume that form. Yeah. You mentioned that, the, uh, that there's a wave of UFO activity associated with uh, collapse in the economy. Uh, what is the reason for that? During the Black Plague, which was in the 14th century, when you go and look through the records about the Black Plague and the books about the Black Plague, they keep referring to mysterious atmospheric phenomena occurring during the Black Plague. And they're describing UFO sightings, how all these poor people were dying there were all these mysterious things were buzzing around the skies of Europe. And it took them a long time to figure out that the flea was bringing them the black plague. But uh, I think every time the human race is in jeopardy in any fashion, whether it's economically or with militarily, we start seeing UFOs all over the place. So what, why is that? Uh, if I knew why, I'd be rich. I'd be publishing books that you'd all be reading. And, uh, I'm afraid I can't answer that. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.